Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Shag. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Wow, you sound really enthusiastic and engaged, Rob. <laughs> I'm responding to some feedback I've got lately saying that I sound less than enthusiastic about my participation in these Who's Who uh, Binder episodes, and so I'm just trying to ramp it up a little. How, how'd it go? I think it was excellent. Let's see if you can keep that going through the entire episode, especially since you're leading this time. <laughs> narrator, narrator, he could not. <laughs> That's right. And to be fair, you know, guys, understand this. It's not so much that Rob doesn't have a passion for these entries. It's this era. You know, it's it's the 1990s. He was kind of checked out. I mean, really, probably been... from life itself at that yeah. point. But... <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and we've had some banner-length episodes, so we probably don't need to waste too much time. Uh, before we get too much further, why don't we take a second to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, bud? Based on my uh, favorite listing in this book, I think a lot of you can guess what it is. Uh, I've selected the Silver Age Sci-Fi Companion from Tomorrow's. This is a book by Mike W. Barr, one of my favorite writers. And it's all about DC Comics' Silver Age Sci-Fi Comics. And it's got an absolutely stunning cover by Alan Davis and Paul Neary. I mean, is there really any other kind? uh, (laughs) uh, And it's got all the uh, sci-fi stars of that era. Adam Strange, Captain Comet, the Space Ranger, Chris Kale 99, and that sex robot that he had. Hey, now. Um, uh, the Atomic Knights and my personal favorite, Ultra the Multi Alien. I, I I have yet to read this book. I gotta get around to it because I love the two Mar companions. They've all been really really good. Features rare art by Carmen Infantino, Murphy Anderson, Gil Kane, Sid Green, Mike Sikowski, and many others. Normal price nineteen ninety five. In stock trades price eleven dollars and ninety seven cents. That's forty percent off. This I, again. I don't know why I haven't bought this yet. This looks so cool. I love this whole era of DC Comics, and uh, this this is just a really fun-looking book. It's in my hands. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. I bought it uh, a couple years ago when I was helping Ryan with Secret Origins on the Space Museum. I love this book. Although, I gotta tell I don't, I don't know that Ultra's actually in here. Um, he must be on a page or something. But, you know, really the main stars of this are uh, Adam Strange, Atomic sure. Knights, Space Museum, Star Hawkins, and that sex robot. Star Rovers and Darwin Jones. Those are the big ones. And then does a whole bunch of other stuff. But, um... This book's amazing. It is such a love letter of that age. I, it made me, I don't know, I, it made my heart sing reading this book cover to cover. So I, I, I totally endorse it as well. And for you picking it for Ultra, I, I kind of hate you for that because that is without a doubt. Well, you know what? I'll save it for when we get to the entry. So uh, I picked because there seems to be a plethora of 
uh, New Gods entries this issue, I thought, you know what? We need to pimp Jack Kirby's Fourth World uh, Omnibus hardcover. This thing, folks, I, mean, I don't need to really sell it. You know who Jack Kirby is. You know the, the quality of his work, the New Gods. This thing is 1,536 pages. You, you could easily kill a man with this thing, just swinging it at the right time. It includes all of his old stuff, uh, you know, original run of New Gods stuff, uh, Jimmy Olsen, Forever People. Well, okay, Forever People, but whatever. Mr. Miracle. All, it's even got the Hunger Dogs in there, you know? This is this is what Chris uh, Franklin puts under his pillow at night and just, you know, so, sort of like the Princess and the Pea thing. He puts it under his pillow at night and sleeps with it on it. Now, it's a little pricey, but again, 1,536 pages. It's $87 right now on in-stock trades, but it normally goes for 150 so that's a hell of a deal, 42% off. So it's definitely worth your time. If you haven't read the classic Jack Kirby New God stuff, it's, it's what finally made me get the New Gods. I really didn't quote-unquote get them before then, but once I read, especially the Mr. Miracle series, I was like, oh, and the New Gods. I was like, I get it now. So anyway, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Oof. Now, before we get much further, Rob, I do want to take a second. We need to talk about, we're covering Who's Who number four this issue, this this episode, but the last episode on the feed was not Who's Who number three. There was something else, wasn't there? That's right. Uh, I, I did our, the first episode of our spinoff show, Who's That?, where we talk about a character that um, I had discovered, you or I, have discovered <laughs> the first time uh, via Who's Who. And in my case, it was the Crime Doctor, the Batman villain, the Crime Doctor. And of course, who better to have on the show when you talk about the Crime Doctor than a real-life doctor, which was Dr. Ange. So we had a really great time uh, digging through all the arcana of that character. I discovered via my research of that episode that he was a Golden Age character. I never mm-hmm. knew that because it doesn't mention that in the uh, Who's Who listing. So that was just a blast, and we are going to do more episodes. Some will be just me, some will be just Shag, and some will be Shag and me uh, talking about different characters that, uh, you know, for one reason or the other, we'd never heard of until we got to their listing in Who's Who. And it was very well received, and we had a, Angie and I had a blast, so I can't wait to do another episode. Well, you and I have got ours planned out already, what we want to That's do. Right. And it came from, you know, if you, if you want to guess, folks, go back and listen to the 26 episodes of the original Who's Who run and hear me go, I've never even heard of this character, but I'm in love with them now. I said that a bunch in the original run, and uh, that's kind of what sparked some of this. So I'm looking – I loved what you and Ange did. That was fantastic, and I'm looking forward to recording some of our own. Cool. All right, folks. Well, uh, remember, go out on the social medias. We want to hear what you're thinking about these entries, uh, maybe your history with the entries, the characters, whatever. Remember to use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcasts. Now, if you can't seem to find your binders because they're a little clunky or, in Ange's case, his parents threw away his, uh, his like A through L binder, uh, Rob, where can they see some of these images? Go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and there you will find a post accompanying this post featuring all the images uh, that we're going to put up uh, from this book. Cool. Now, we will cover feedback at the end of the episode, but we just, we, we, we're just so excited. we got to touch on this. we got a little bit of feedback uh, that we want to cover in the front end, specifically our buddy and frenemy, Diablo Frank. Went to a recent convention, and there he got a chance to talk to Mark Wade. And if you remember, Mark Wade was an editor on the uh, Who's Who volume, uh, Update 88, and he wrote a lot of the entries for Loose Leaf. So why don't we hear what Mr. Wade has to say about Who's Who? You edited the last comic book iteration of the well-loved reference book, Who's Who. Uh, can you give me any insight on why DC ended up abandoning the series, at least in a standard format? And did you have any involvement with the Loose Leaf? Uh, yo, yeah, I wrote like two-thirds of the Loose Leaf, if not more. Uh, any, anything you give me, I would do, and I could do it in one draft, in one sitting, just boom, right out it goes. My finest, my, my fastest writing job ever wasn't that, but it was related. Uh, they did a bunch of trading cards around that time, early early 90s, uh, and they needed 
a certain number of words on the back with the character's origin, powers, history, and so forth. And there were 180 cards, and they needed them in 24 hours. And I just sat there, and I did like one every six minutes. It was as fast as I could type. First draft theater, buddy. Just go, go, go. And I banged out 180 cards. It was great. Uh, I, had to, I also had to figure out what the art was on the front of the card. I didn't just a matter of that. I had to figure out what the character was doing on the front of the card, which also took time. So, um, But loose leaf, who's who, same thing. I would just I would eat that stuff up. Um, and I gave Bob Greenberger a really hard time on the very first edition of the very first one because its special fold-out was Atlantis. And it starts, and Bobby wrote this, and it starts with the words... Deep below the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> and we all froze. Bobby, where's Atlantis? Is it in the Pacific, or is it in the Atlantic? And I, I mocked him and mocked him and mocked him, and then Karma Graham for Mark Wade. Then I turned in an entry for Heat Wave, the Flash villain, and for whatever reason that day as fast as I was going and I know these characters like I know my own family and when it came to Secret Identities I did not write Mick Rory like I should have I wrote Rory Calhoun who is a famous you know western star of the 1950s and that's in print too so guess what I you know I screwed up too yeah comic book edition though you did the editing on that yeah I did a lot of, I mean I did I did the whole who's who in the legion that was that was me and then a lot of the editing on the last round of it the last we did like a five issue the updates updates at the end uh, and at that point I think they just figured that that was the, the the whole point of it was to sort of codify the DC universe because it was still molten after the in, in, the events of crisis and at that point I think the feeling was okay everything's pretty much settled we don't have a lot of updates to do so I would have kept doing them I love doing them well that was awesome Thank you so much, Frank. We really, really appreciate. I mean, God, I'm just, I mean, after everything Rob's done to you over the years, and still you went ahead and did that for us. I'm, I'm blown away. I can't believe it. Yeah, that was really neat to hear from from Mark Wade. And he's somebody, obviously, if you ever had a chance to interview him at length, would be amazing because he's had such an amazing career as a writer, and then of course before that as an editor. And he's a giant, massive fanboy like us. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he's one of those guys where it's like you would have to really pare down what you want to talk to him about because you can't get it all in. I'd almost be like, I just want to talk to him about who's who, which would be a giant waste because you were talking about you know his runs on various books and Flash or Daredevil or Kingdom Come. But I mean, I just just that little bit about who's who I thought was great so thank you Frank and uh, it's funny I, I feel like because all right we'll just put it out there folks we were a little harsh on update 88 as far as uh, how we felt some mistakes were made in there so I feel like Frank was digging for that like looking for that <laughs> to dig and waiting for Mark to say well I really messed it up or something but uh, the one thing I do want to point out is he met, he said it right there in the air when you and I covered issue number one of Loose Leaf we were talking about Atlantis I even asked you I said Rob it says right here Atlantis is in the Pacific what and Mark calls it out right mm-hmm. there in the entry, mm-hmm. so I, I, I feel justified. So, <laughs> well, that's good. And that's all that really matters here, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's okay. the whole point of this whole network is for you to feel self-satisfied. It's the Shag Show. I'm good with that. Uh, I'm okay with that. So, all right. Well, let's get into uh, Who's Who proper here, folks. Just as a reminder, the Who's Who in the DC Universe series was a 16-issue miniseries. Cover price is four dollars and ninety-five cents. Ouch. Back in uh, 1990, but you know what? It was worth it. Uh, Loosely format, so that means every single page can be torn out and you can put any order you want. There were 24 entries per issue. And remember, at this point, DC was focused on the current DC universe at that time, that continuity, rather than the entire history. They were planning to do more, uh, you know, stuff with smaller niche history stuff later, but just never seemed to materialize. 
And as we get into these entries, the front side is always a pinup piece of art with a logo. On the back side of the, uh, of the sheet of paper is the text with some uh, inset images. And you get the personal data, like you know height, weight, all that kind of stuff, history, powers, whatever. And each sheet is labeled with a color identifying how you might catalog these entries. You know, Red for hero, black for villain, blue for sporting cast, purple for supernatural, orange for aliens, green for geography, and yellow for technology. Rob loves this stuff, folks. Oh my, he eats it and breathes it. But our goal here is to describe the entries for you so you don't have to have them in front of you that you're not trying to i don't know walk across campus and flip through your binder at the same time and trip and on a a set of bicycles and embarrass yourself we don't want that to happen to you i mean come on really we're here for you we're your friends so anyway you can go out to our website as we said and check those out and this is who's who number four cover dated november 1990 it was on the shelf though on september 25th 1990 one day after little ryan daly's birthday isn't that nice so Rob, <laughs> this is your show, buddy. I'm just here as the, the color uh, guy. Random, so. random fact. Okay, well, the cover, of, of course, is Wonder Woman by George Perez, but we will get to that when we get to her listing. Uh, the inside cover features the same editorial, uh, at least on the in, uh, the first part, Then we'll get to letters and then when we get to the uh, back cover. The first listing is Barter. <sighs> um, oh come on! Uh, well, the first I, entry you side. I know. Well, I mean, I'm trying to keep my enthusiasm up, and the first entry is a hawk and dove villain. But uh, <laughs> okay, um, I guess the first thing that jumped out at me is uh, I tend to pay attention to these things. As we see him drawn here by um, Scott Hanna, um, he looks like a short, squat guy, and it says he's five ten and two twenty two. No. no, no, a guy who no, 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 like no, no. that is not five ten and two twenty two. If a guy a bill like that is 5'10". He's probably 300 pounds easily. I don't know why that stuff bothers me so much, but it does. It's just like, come on, guys. What are you doing? Because you're, like, weight sensitive. That's why. I, maybe so, you're yeah. Running, focused on health and all that. Uh, anyway, the, the listing is written um, a little different. It's not so much – I mean, it's a history, but it's kind of more dramatically written. It opens up with the mm-hmm. modest sign above his shop says, Barter Trading, Exotic Goods and Services, Inside the Dimly Lit Pawn Shop lay a potpourri of antiques and merchandise, eccentric and cosmic in scope, a Green Lantern power battery. How the hell did he get that? Demonic scrolls, <laughs> weapons from apocalypse. So it's like, it's actually, um, it's written by um, Barbara and Carl Kiesel. And I got to admit, like I said, this character has zero interest for me at all visually. It's just a guy in a suit. To me, it's very boring. And the fact that he's a Hawk and Dove villain, it just makes me tune out. But the listing is very well written. Like, I wish a lot more of them had been written in this kind of more dramatic style. I think it's fun. Absolutely. Now, um, I got lots to say on this. Uh, so, for, first of all, I should mention um, on the art side of it. Did you? I don't know about you. I spent a lot of time looking at all the little Easter eggs in the background. Did you spend any time doing that? Yeah, you can see. There's. Uh, he's got like a presumably Superman action figure. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know. Or and you see with like a a Joker mask. He's got Enemy Ace's uh, leather helmet. He's got presumably that's Jonah Hex's. No, that's not Jonah Hex's gun because there's a domino mask attached to it. Lone Ranger is what I, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, I guess Lone Ranger. He's got a Mona Lisa, which is, you know, okay. Uh, <laughs> and there's a microscope. We see there's some turtles in a, um, in a uh, fish tank. There's a little jalopy car. There's a piece of kryptonite in a, uh, in a glass case. So, yeah, I mean, there's all funds and neat little bric-a-brac that, uh, you know, 
suggest uh, moments from the DC universe. Oh, there we see an Enterprise as well. Yep, there's a Star Trek Enterprise. Yep, yep, yep. Also, if you look carefully in the very foreground, there is an a, there's an umbrella stand, and one of the umbrella handles is shaped like a penguin, which I love. Oh yes, you're right. You're right. And you get a, a bat. What I assume on the sh- on the shelf under the Winnie the Pooh is a bat wing from the 1989 Batman movie. I assume that's what that is. And then the turtles. Did you get the turtles? Uh, presumably they're the Teenage Mutant Ninja yes! Turtles. Right. There's four of them. There's right. four turtles with a little domino mask next to them. I'm like, oh my god, the turtles! I thought that was great. Um, a couple things about Barter. Now, first of all, you mentioned Scott Hanna did the art. I wondered why Scott Hanna. He's an inker. Well, he was the inker on the Hawk and Dove series at that time, which sort of makes sense why he did it. And, of course, there's creator credit in here to Carl and Barbara Kiesel and Greg Gould. Gulier, I don't know, whatever. And the color is black for villain. Now, a couple of things I found interesting was the whole thing about Barter. And again, it comes from that dramatic way it's written. You're absolutely right. But he talks about how he doesn't, it's all, literally, it's Barter. He doesn't take money for the object in his weird store. It's all about exchanging stuff. So he take, like, he'll exchange information or 10 years of your life, stuff like that. I thought was pretty cool. And then they talk about how his pawn shop is, it's, it's dimensionally funky it's like it shows up in different places the door will be in one wall one day and then a different wall another day it just moves around uh he's pretty much a time lord near as i can tell from doctor who because it sounds like a damn tardis and then uh talks about his fear of influence and how he owns the eiffel tower and he leases it to france i thought that was pretty cool so at this point um barter was appearing as we said in hawk and dove and hawk and dove was on issue uh, on the same month that on the shelves hawk and dove number 18 and annual number one and you know with hawk and dove coming to tv could we see Barter? Probably not. But I I think he reads as an incredibly fascinating character in a comic book he probably that probably didn't deserve him. That's kind of how I take that. Yeah, I have to say, I do like the idea. Uh, you mentioned the, 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 the pawn shop, and it says base of operations, dimensionally mobile pawn shop. That's fun. On the, on the one hand, I was kind of like, well, he's really boring. He's just the guy in a suit. But then I think, eh, but it also might be kind of cheesy if he had like a hood and he looked like – you know, a member of the Church of Blood or something. You know, so there, <laughs> yeah. there may be something more to it that he is just an ordinary guy with these amazing abilities. I mean, I, w- I would love to know the story of how we got a power battery. Like, you know, right, presumably yeah. the Guardians of O are really sloppy letting one of them, ar- you know, you know, they're like counting them back on O and they're like, wait, we're short one. You know, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> Nort! Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, come on. It, it, this is the kind of character that I would expect to have seen in Jack, uh, the Jack Knight Starman series. This guy would have been perfect in that series. But, uh, you know, obviously he had other plans for it. But I'm just saying, it, given what they, you know, as Hawk and Dove ended, this would have been a great character for them. All right. Next up, okay. Blaze. Uh, I have absolutely no familiarity with this character at all. Uh, she first appeared in, as a disembodied voice, Superman number 34, the second series, of course. And then as Angelica, uh, Adventures of Superman 469. And then as Blaze, Adventure Comics. Uh, action comics, excuse me, six fifty six. Um, I always wondered about that. Like, it must be a pain in the butt to have to chronicle. Like, what's the really the first appearance? You know, is it like <laughs> the voice. It's like that thing with Wolverine. He appears in one panel yep. Yep. at the end of that one whole comic, and then it's like, is that the first appearance? Is it not? So she's this kind of this demon, demonic figure. The uh, drawing is by uh, Brett Breeding, very good, mm-hmm. very good artist. Um, she, again, she looks like uh, she looks. She's human form, but she's got like kind of like a hooves thing going on. She's got big horns, and she's looking out over the sort of mist, and there's Superman caught in there. Like I said, I other than this listing, I have no familiarity with her at all. I wasn't reading Superman at this time, so I was just like, okay, I, I, Base of Operations, the Netherworld, okay? That's good <laughs> to me. 
She's kind of a Satan character, you know, right. the devil, but it's supposed to be female. It kind of changed. I, one thing I'm glad that for, they didn't draw her sort of sexy. Like I, in my mind, at least Michael Bay, might tell me otherwise. I seem to remember at different periods, they've done uh, blaze as a sexy type of character. And that always kind of like, eh. so this version, I kind of like the, the hideous demonic version. Right. In the middle panel, we see her looking humanoid. Yeah. It's human. She's sexy. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things she's famous for is that she corrupted Jerry white, who was the son of Perry white, Truthfully, it wasn't the son of Perry White. It was actually Lex Luthor had an affair with Perry's wife, and it was Lex's son. But Jerry White uh, and ultimately led to his death, which is very sad. And uh, it, this is a um, this is before Blaze later on got caught up with a uh, you're Satanus. I don't know if you remember him from the from the Bronze Age. Yes. Satanus was a Superman villain, um, and they brought him back in the modern age in in the Superman books. And it turns out Blaze and Satanus were brother and sister. Okay. And there, there was a Blaze uh, Satanist war that went on in some issues later. So this is all before that. So, and uh, at right this point, you know, Action Comics was on issue 658 uh, to put it sort of in context, which was also the Sinbad story we talked about last month. So that's where Blaze was at this point. And for more information on Blaze, please check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast Michael Bailey does, which is fantastic. Also, I should mention, by the way, this is one of the rare instances where we've had a purple border for Supernatural. And the text was written by Roger Stern, the, the wonderful Roger Stern. So. Awesome. It does mention she cannot be destroyed, which is, you know, very handy for the writer. You know, you can just keep bringing <laughs> her back forever because she's exactly she's magic. She's made as as Michael Bailey say, it's come because comics because magic. It's magic. Yep. It's fine. Uh, next up, I'm sure you're gonna love this one, Blue Beetle by Ty Templeton. Uh, I mean, it's just great. I mean, it it's it's not exact, but it's a slight. I would say reverse image of the bug listing because the bug listing mm. uh, had the bug from the top looking down on it and we saw Beetle descending from it. Well, here now we're below the bug looking up at Beetle as he's falling into the frame. Uh, again, it's not exactly – I don't think it's meant to be an exact parallel, but it's it, it's close. It's Ty Templeton. You know, you can't beat it. It's just – it's, it's happy. He's got this big smile on his face. Um, the listing gets into a lot of – Jokes here and there. It mentions that uh, and his height is weight, and height is weight. It says five eleven, one ninety. Parentheses needs to diet. Uh, which I don't know. Five eleven, one ninety is not in bad shape. I guess for a superhero, it's not great. But I mean, of course, you know, is befitting the character. It's a very, very kind of not silly listing. I don't mean to say that, but it's lighthearted. Obviously, uh, written by Kevin Dooley. Uh, I like that it mentions, and I've gone over this before, but it's worth saying again since we do this that when they. Do, it mentions first appearance and it's this mm-hmm. historical Captain Adam number 83. I love that it mentions other publishers when appropriate. I think that's cool. I, I like that idea that, you know, it's just because he, you know, he's owned by DC now doesn't mean he didn't ever exist somewhere else. And on the, um, the insets, we see him. Wahahaing shag. That's Yay! right up your alley. We see I mean, him, literally there's in the air. It says. Bwahaha. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and we see him with the bug. And then of course, more importantly, him and booster about to, Smack some uh, custard cream pies onto Guy Gardner, which is probably like their most important work, really. <laughs> All right, um, yeah, I do have. I am very thrilled about this entry. You're right. The front is just, the, the pure joy on Ted's face on this yep. completely conveys everything right there. It's so much fun. Now, I'm gonna um, contradict you, surprisingly, right? I don't think this is a reverse of the bug image. Instead, I think this is an homage to the cover of Blue Beetle number one, the Len Wein, Paris Collins okay. issue. Because uh, that, that one is – I'm looking at it right now on my phone. It's almost identical. It's actually – you're under the bug. Blue Beetle's dropping on a rope. Uh, there, You can see the city around it. The sky is even the same orangey-red color. I mean it's 
all it's it's like some i mean he's in a different physical pose but i mean it's the same exact concept so i feel like it's a that's more of an homage as what it is to blue beetle number one but it's a great image absolutely love it one thing about the bug too if you look at the arms of the bug they're like really really mechanical and I like that. Usually people draw the arms really slick, like a like an actual you know insect or something. I like the mechanical look. I think it looks cool. I, I think it's a nice touch that Ty Templeton added. So yeah, uh, they're very nice, very nice. And I love the um, the portrait, the inset portrait. Mm-hmm. That's a very distinctive face. I've, I've said this before. Yeah. A lot of other comic book artists can't draw more than one face. It tends to just be this. You know, Superman is Batman. You know, Batman is Superman with a mask. Superman is Aquaman with blonde, you know, blonde hair, that kind of thing. But that's a very distinctive face. I really love the way Templeton drew that. I think it's just terrific. Well, one of the things we said, uh, uh, um, Luke Dobb and I, in a recent episode of JLI, the, the first one Ty Templeton did, is that Ty Templeton really was a great successor for Kevin McGuire on JLI. Because one of the things that, you know, of course, Kevin McGuire is most famous for is his facial expressions, right? The way he does faces, the way they express, they emote, they act, things like that. And Templeton, like, as we really studied it, he does a really darn good job with faces. So he really made, was the logical heir for Kevin McGuire. And it's you're right, it shows here in the portrait. It's great. I love the occupation. Uh, Devil May Care Adventurer. <laughs> and um, now I, I'm jumping a bit of a head, but you mentioned the half serious, half jokey mix in the in the in the description by Kevin Dooley. Right. There's actually a letter about once we get to the letters. There's a letter about the bug entry, and they didn't like it. Whoever, uh, whatever, really wound up nerd wrote in was, did not like the jokiness. And uh, Michael, you actually says we hope you like the mix of what we did with Blue Beetle, and I do. I think it works great. Because you don't miss anything. You get his whole history. It's here. But they just crack a lot of jokes inside of it. And, I mean, it's funny, guys. I mean, they talk about, well, you know, maybe I'll post. I don't usually post the backside, but maybe I'll post the backside of this one because it's fun. It says Beetle, then, Beetle fancies himself a ladies' man. Unfortunately, the ladies fancy him, a nu- fancies him, fancy him a nuisance. <laughs> That's exactly right. They do talk about him and Booster falling out because at this point, Booster had just quit the Justice League, actually. Uh, and one of the things that I forget this a lot, you know, Booster and Beetle are famous for they're trying to get the get rich quick schemes, right? This says it here, and someone else told me on a recent JLI podcast that I guess I never picked up on that they said Beetle is the one who's usually concocting these schemes. And in my mind, it was Booster, but this says it was Beetle. The uh, the other person I was talking with said it was Beetle. So I guess Ted's the worst influence, really. He's the problem. Hmm. He's the problem child there. So anyway, uh, red entry for Hero, no doubt about that, obviously. Uh, and Justice League right now is on issue number 44, uh, Justice League in uh, America. And that's the one where they had the uh, couple issues where they were at like, the supervillain bar with the poker and stuff like that. It's really fun stuff. And for more on Blue Beetle, you should check out the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. Really awesome show with the dead sexy co-host. Uh, I mean, host, no, host, the co-hosts are okay. The host is the sexy one. And anyway. you were thinking of Luke Dobb. I, well, you know, I did record with him recently, so yeah. And then you can also check out the Beatlemania podcast for more on tip. All right, next up is Cheetah. I guess this would technically be Cheetah 3? Uh, something like that, Something yeah. like that, because there was the Golden Age and then Silver Age, and then this is the new one. Um, this is drawn by Kevin McGuire and George Perez with text by Mark Wade. so really bringing the heavy hitters in on this one. And I got to say, um, much like I felt about the Silver Swan listing where I was like, you know, I like Jill Johnson. I like George Perez. I don't like him together. This listing is a little underwhelming for me considering it's those two gargantuan powerhouses together. And um, it's a naked woman. So, I mean. There's just something about the pose that seems very stiff to me. It doesn't have a lot of movement. If you go and you look at the listing for this same character, the exact same character in, mm-hmm. I believe, Update 90, which was drawn by Perez – 
where she's flailing about and she's got her arm, her claws out, and she's like screaming or roaring, I guess, and she's a cheetah. That has a lot of movement, and this one looks almost like um, a, a plastic model that you'd pose hmm. and put together. So this, is, I mean, it's not terrible. It's just kind of just a little stiff. So I just, I think it maybe it's another one of the things where uh, it's two great tastes that don't necessarily take taste great together. McGuire, great artist. George Perez, great artist. Together, maybe not so much. I don't know. You're kind of destroying this for me um, because, again, super hot naked chick was like really in my wheelhouse. Uh, but now I'm seeing like her right leg is too long. Um, the foot looks kind of off. Where is the left leg leg actually posing? Because the left leg she looks like she's trying to getting ready to pose to spring. Is what she like a cat would spring. But the left leg doesn't look quite. Oh, Rob, you're making me so mad. Anyway, I'll focus on the cool hair and um, the nakedness, and which is great. And uh, I'll, I'll choose. You know, by the way, I, I got to warn you, folks. You're going to hear she's hot a few times this episode, simply because they really stack the deck here, guys. I mean, come on, Wonder Woman's in this issue, Cheetah's in this issue, Troya's in this issue, Phantom Lady's in this issue. It's not my fault. It's really not my fault. So please bear with me. I will. Uh, we'll make one more comment about this entry uh, based on what you said was about her being Cheetah three. There's not even a reference to the other no, incarnations. No. Like in her first appearance, I feel like there should be like another category, like not historical because this is Barbara Minerva, but there should be another category of like, I don't know, previous incarnation maybe or, or, or other version or something like that. Yes, you know, when, it seems very strange to me that they you wouldn't know that there's no that there have been two previous versions of this character to this point. Right. And I by the way, and I I said that the the pose was stiff, but the insets are not. The insets are great. The, the, there's the one of her putting her war paint on, and then there's another one of her flipping Wonder Woman around with her tail, and then there's a third one of her grabbing the magic lasso. Those all look terrific. And uh, I have to say, I'm really curious to what version of Cheetah we're going to get for the Wonder Woman movie, as we know that's going to be played by Kristen Wiig, of all people. So right. I'm really sort of bad. It's not going to be this version, I'm sure. So I guess it's going to be their own take on it, maybe? I don't know. This actually brings up a little bit of acid in my mouth, but I have to thank you for, I guess, introducing me to Kirsten Wig. I don't know. I guess I'd seen her in a couple of movies, but didn't really pay attention to her until one of your early film and water episodes uh, on the Skeleton, Skeleton Twins. Twins. Yeah. So I went out and watched Skeleton Twins uh, on your recommendation, which I, why I listened to you, I have no idea. Anyway, uh, fell in love with her there, then saw her in Bridesmaids, and I just I had a whole like series within a week or two where I saw her in like three different movies, and not all of them was intentional. Uh, Skeleton Twins was the first one; was, the rest of them just kind of happened. And um, I think she's fantastic. So, but yeah, I can't. Even though I think she's she's a great actress, she's hysterical. She, I also think she's beautiful and sexy. I can't see her playing this version. No, it's gonna you know, it's gonna I, have to be a different version. Sure. Yeah, it, unless they CGI her. And they just do the motion capture or something, which I hope they don't do because no, that's the last yeah. thing he needs to do is yeah. more motion capture. Yeah. So. Have her there on um, the set, please. Right. Exactly. So I love the prehensile tail. You mentioned it in the inset. I love that. I, I, it's really cool to see the action. I mean, she is yoking Wonder Woman just what? Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, the only thing I got about this, and this is against Mark Wade, really, is the the text is, is fine. It, it, it describes really the physical issues going on with her, with her body, her health. They talk about her crazy acts. Uh, but it really it, it lacks any description of her mental state. Really, I mean, she has got reading this stuff. She has got to be cray cray. But they don't tell us that. Um, only what she's done, rather than her mental state. And I and I'm going to mention later on in this episode where they do they do this well. It, they didn't do it well here, and that, I feel like that's a bit of a knock against it. 
I do love so. uh, Martin Mark Wade having you dance around the part which says, because the ritual required its subject to be a virgin, dash, a requirement Minerva could not meet, dash, the cheetah <laughs> took its toll on her. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, George kind of boxed him in with that one, I think. But yeah, anyway, think so. so Wonder Woman was on issue 48 at this point on the shelves the same month, and it was just, you know, right before their anniversary 50th issue. And Cheetah actually hadn't appeared in the book in over a year at this point, so... And for more on Wonder Woman, you can check out, of course, the Diana Prince uh, Wonder Woman podcast by our buddy uh, Diablo Frank. That's more Bronze Age stuff. But there's also the uh, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast, which would be worth checking out. And finally, uh, check out the Fire and Water podcast Summer Specials, but summer, sam- summer, summer Sampler, is that what I'm trying to say, for some fun information about Cheetah. That's right. All right, next up is Kronos by Gil Kane. Um, I call shenanigans on this one because, <laughs> damn it, I want Kronos in his ridiculous costume with the clock oh on his face gosh. and the stripy pants and the whole <sighs> bit. I don't, I don't know who is this giant Richard Nixon that is looming over uh, the Atom. I, yeah, I. Look. This is oh, he does look like Richard Nixon here, right? Uh, this is the fantastic Kronos uh, from the Power of the Atom series. Yeah, no. Just no, I reject this categorically. Uh, I am a but it's Gil Kane. Uh, I mean, it's Gil freaking Kane. Okay, well, all right, the, the, look. Okay, I love the design. I love that this is like a postery image. I think this yeah. is great. I love the clock behind him. I love the kind of Kirby crackle going on in the background. I think it's great. The poses are great. My one uh, quibble is that this point in his career, Gil Kane was doing all of his inking with a rapidograph. And if you're not familiar with what a rapidograph is, it's basically a series of pens, um, ink pens. It's not a brush. And rapidographs are great. I certainly use them a lot in, in, in my life. And they come in all different widths, like a point zero zero, where the line is very thin and then you get thicker as they go along. The problem with rapidographs is you don't get any variance in your line. And so hmm. it's the same width no matter where you go. Now with a brush, you can kind of whip in and out and you can get a thicker line with a thinner line. And when you ink something with a rapidograph, you get a very flat look because there's nothing has any sort of perspective. And that's what Gokane was using. And you could see, I think a lot of this stuff doesn't look great when it's blown up at a slightly bigger size. And that's my only quibble because the anatomy is certainly great. The design is great. I just wish like they had maybe hired somebody else to ink it, give it just a little more life because it's just to me, it has a very flat look to it. And like I said, aside from the fact that we don't get to see Kronos in his cool costume except for the insets. And I love it. I, uh, I just yeah. learned something, folks. I didn't know all that about inking. So when you say brush, I mean, do you mean literally like people would use like a painter's brush when they ink? Well, not a painter's brush, but a, but it's an ink brush. Yeah, it's you dip it in ink and you and, – and if you get good with the brush, I was never good with the brush. You can manipulate the line so where if you're kind of going over an arm, you can give one part of the arm a thickness and it goes into mm-hmm. a thin part and it gives it more dimensionality. You wow! Yeah. I just assume people just use pens. Nope, 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 nope. But if you use pens, the problem is, no matter how you move that pen point, you're not going to get the same. The, the same. You're going to get the same line no matter what. Yeah, and I see what you're talking right. about. I that's can clearly what, see in yeah. this drawing yeah. that every line is the same width. Yes. You're right, and that's what Gokane um, was doing at this point. Never would have, never knew that. There you go. Wow. Okay. Uh, I do love the my. This is probably my favorite. I had. I have some notes here, but this is probably my favorite inset. 
is the third panel with the Kronos just is simply trying to stab at him with some scissors. Like he's <laughs> just you could like he he abandoned all of his plans, all of his complicated schemes to kill the superhero. He's like, let me just stab him with some scissors, see if that works. I love that. I think that's from a classic Adam comic. Actually, I think it is. Yeah, it's great. And then, of course, the second it said is him with uh, the Injustice Gang of the World, and we see when he was. Uh, teammates with Libra, everybody's favorite, the Tattooed Man, Poison Ivy, and Scarecrow, which actually is not a half-bad team, really, if you can get rid of Libra and Tattooed Man. Okay, I was going to say, all right, thank you. <laughs> I was My note actually has Libra again, because this is like his second time showing up in the Who's Who entries, because we saw Libra on another Who's Who, we're like, really? Is he the guy you really want? Is he your go-to, you know, spotlight character? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, a couple of facts about this. You know, he, yes. Uh, it's funny. It's funny you talk about the costume because you know, this entry is written by Mark Wade, and Mark Wade actually calls the original costume Garish Harlequin costume. And he's like, right. Even, the, even they're taking digs at it. And I'm man. My my note also is classic costume. Yuck. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I. I I've totally lost my place where I was. Okay. Uh, some interesting things in here when they talk about Kronos is how uh, Kronos actually became like a – when Adam – the power of the Adam kind of went away and Kronos became a Blue Beetle villain for a little while. And so he had fought Blue Beetle, ended up back in time, right, back in the dinosaur years, makes his way forward in time. And actually it's funny. He comes back to the 20th century, but he missed. He showed up too early. So he showed up – well, he showed up seven years early. So what did he do? He's like – I know what things are going to happen over the next seven years. So he set himself up to get like a bajillion dollars, you know, investing in the stock market or whatever he did. He do. became super rich. That's when he got rid of the garish costume and started wearing this one. Is because because he, he was super rich at this point, and I guess he didn't need to buy that ridiculous wear that ridiculous costume. So anyway, uh, they also talk about how him and Adam teamed up during the invasion, which was kind of cool. I liked that. And um, anyway, so it, it's an interesting character. Uh, it's it's fun. You know, they did a lot of stuff with him. They they replaced him with a superhero named Kronos later. Uh, of course, the color is black around the border for villain. And he appeared in, uh, as I said, Power of the Atom, but it had been over a year since Power of the Atom was canceled, so actually Kronos was in kind of limbo at this point. And for more on Kronos, you should check out the Power of the Atom uh, blog and, and podcast by our buddies over at the World Spine Podcast Network. Now, it's been sort of on hiatus for a long time. I'd love for Frank to go back to it, though, because we all need some Ray Palmer in our lives, and I, I like uh, also Ryan Choi. But anyway, also our buddy Aaron Head Moss on the Head Speaks podcast has done some focus on the Atom. Check him out. All right. I do want to mention, too, before we sign off, I like that Wade tries to do a little bit of puffery for Kronos, where it says he's currently in the custody of the authorities, though it is unlikely he will stay there. A master criminal such as himself certainly made plans for such a contingency. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because, you know, as Mark said, he knew the number of the word count. You know, he knew how much he had to fill, so he's there filling it. So. There you go. Well, we should mention first appearances here. You know, the Adam number three going all the way back to 1962. Good deal. Right, well, that's back when uh, Richard Nixon was really famous. So, you know, <laughs> people you knew him back then. He had just come off being vice president for eight years. It was a big deal. Uh, so, okay, next up is Desaad. Uh, not that you'd know that, though, because uh, whoever did the printing on this one decided to, I don't know, I'm going to say didn't decide to print it on black, on a black background. I think a plate fell off. I think that's what happened. I think there's meant to be a shadow here. The black is the shadow, and I think there's meant to be another color on top of it, and that just disappeared. Because at least on my copy, you really cannot see the word Desaad at all, other than the A and the D. And it's hard enough to read in the very stylized font. So uh, it's, as, uh, as they say, Batman pulled a boner on this one. <laughs> I have things to add here. Uh, you are correct, sir. It's a mess. You can't see the word Desaad at all. And uh, I, actually, I, I don't know that a plate fell off because his fingernails are white. So it's not like the white plate fell away. Well, it may have been uh, but- a different color. 
It could have been. Yeah, could have been. So uh, what they actually did, Rob, and this is your favorite thing, they went back and reprinted this entry. Oh, dear God. Uh, I have two copies of the Desaad entry, and one of them, they're, they're basically identical. The coloring's a little bit different here and there, like, you know, anyway. But uh, the second one, Desaad, is printed in all white. Okay, fair enough. So. I don't know. I don't know what issue that came out in, and we're not going to cover it when we get there. No, we're but not. There you go, folks. <laughs> okay, it's drawn by Keith Giffen and Will Blyberg, and this is this is some version of Desaad I was not familiar with on the on the inset. Uh, that's the version I'm I'm more familiar with, where you've got the purple robe, and it looks like he, he looks like the uh, the superpowers figure. Right, I was going to say superpowers would be the way to go. Yeah. Right, and I like on the the inset portrait. It's it's Keith Giffen really channeling uh, Jack Kirby. Like it looks like a very stylized Jack Kirby uh, on the the main image, not so much, but I the the little portrait. I, I think it looks uh, very much like it said, like an <laughs> indie version of of Kirby. Uh, we see him getting uh, zapped by the Omega beams, of course, and stuff like that. I mean, was the was the um, was the new God's book running at this time? The new new God's. Yes, book? it was. Yes, okay. it was. Which and by the way, just to follow you back, back you up, I don't get this cover either, folks. I don't know that Rob actually described it. He just said he didn't know what it was. The cover, Desaad is draped in the skin of another person. It, you can see this guy's head. You see his nose. You see his hair. Uh, he's wearing like a cowl. Yes, it's really he's, grotesque. Yeah, he's got the arms draped over him. Now, underneath it, you can see he's wearing like a purple, like a variation on his classic outfit. It looks a little more fancy, like 18th century, you know, uh, the, the uh, aristocracy kind of look. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very weird and, and gross. It's, it's really gross. And the fact that I have two of them makes it kind of, ugh, really? Uh, so, yes, New Gods was going. In fact, I, and I was going to save it for the end, but, yes, they're on issue 20 at this point, uh, and it's all about Yuga Khan, who is Darkseid's father, is where they were in that point right now. Okay. I like it. it says occupation, expert torturer. Yes, I know. I love that. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned in the previous listing that Mark Wade had space to fill. Obviously, mm-hmm. not everybody was worried about that because Peter Sanderson wrote this one, and it's barely half a page. It's a, right. Like, and, which is surprising considering how long Desaad's been around, and he's been Darkseid's right-hand man forever. He first appeared in Forever People Number 2, um, which is, again, underscores like how much Kirby intermeshed those four titles because you would think that Kirby that the uh, saw would have been in New Gods maybe or Mr. Miracle not Forever People but I think Kirby regarded those four books as sort of interchangeable and so the yep. characters popped in and out of each one of them but yeah there's a, there's a lot of white space here it doesn't really I mean Powers of Weapons doesn't talk about that he has powers he's a brilliant inventor he's a brilliant inventor of weapons for killing and torture that's very nice <laughs> Uh, your notes mirror mine. Same thing. Not a lot of text. Thought that was very surprising by Sanderson. So, um, worth mentioning that he does get a creator credit by Jack Kirby. Very nice. And of course, the border's black for villain. And uh, if you want more on Desaad, check out either the Kirby cast or get that big omnibus I talked about in the beginning. Yeah. I wonder why Kirby didn't do any of these listings. He was around. I mean, he did. Hmm. He did a bunch of them in the original series. So oh, I yeah, never... he did a ton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know why. I didn't he... think about that. When when did he pass away? Uh, 96. So was he on the outs with DC at this point? I, maybe? Don't, I don't think so, but I obviously hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, okay. Don't know. We're going to get another one right after this, which is a fast. We're going to get a lot more. We're, so well, actually, going. yeah, a bunch, yeah. <laughs> Fastback, uh, which is one of the new gods. Now, he first appeared in New Gods number five. It's drawn by Tom Lyle and Scott Hanna. Scott Hanna again. And we see Fastback flying uh, into the air over over a giant statue. I'm not sure what that statue of exactly. Um, he was always, I, again, I, I was about to say he's always, I have no idea what he's always, because I don't remember this character at all. I confuse <laughs> Me him, either! <laughs> I confuse him a lot with Light Ray, and Light yep. Ray's the one who was always kind of positive, but here, this fastback looks kind of 
mournful. He's sad. His uh, face mask looks very painful to wear because it looks like it smashes his nose down. And it's worth mentioning too. He's flying over. It looks like it's probably New Genesis because there's right, statues, sure. but it's in rubbles. The, like right. there's in ruins. I don't know what's going on in the New Gods book at this point, but it looks like New Genesis is a wreck. Right. I'm not terribly impressed with this art piece. I love Tom Lyle and Scott Hanna. Maybe you can tell me the anatomy's off or something. I don't know, but it just doesn't wow me. Yeah, it's kind of there. It's fine. It's not bad, but it's just fine. I mean, his whole power is that he could fly like that at great speeds. Like that's it. Like, well, all right, that's not that. You know, we have Superman. That's <laughs> that big of a deal. So yeah, I just this is one of these characters that I'm just like, okay, I'm familiar with him. I remember from the previous listing in Who's Who, but uh, you know. It just didn't really register with me. Well, and it's just kind of the, and you know, the new gods fans are probably getting all bent out of shape here. But I just it it doesn't really grab me because his function isn't that different from light rays. They right. fly and they're right. fast. That is exactly the light ray's job. It even says here he is second in speed to light ray. Yeah. Well, guess what, <laughs> folks? Second means you're the first loser. Sorry, fastback. Um, the other thing that's kind of unique to me is he's a singer. He does like to, he's like a, you know, he likes to sing, and I guess that's a thing. I don't know, whatever. But uh, it, I don't know, he's like kind of a forgettable new god. I don't really think about it. Anyway, another creator credit for Jack Kirby. Awesome. He's read for Hero, of course, and written again by Peter Sanderson. Not much text again, and I think this entry kind of proves that not everyone deserved a full page. But yeah, really. kind of hard to do half pages, though, when it's loose leaf. Isn't the, so. uh, isn't the turtle... That runs fast in the zoo crew fastback as well. He's either this. We I think we actually had this joke in a previous episode okay. actually because right. I got confused. <clears throat> okay, folks, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it is maybe the same name. Okay, right. So it's hard for me to take this one a little more seriously, but okay. Uh, well, let's move on to another one that's actually much more impressive. Yes, Granny Goodness, drawn by Matt Wagner, which is wow. just really great um, on the front. It's her with these gigundo boobs and uh, <laughs> and her no neck at all. Like she's just nothing but jowls and cheeks going right down into her shoulders. In the back, you've got her her slaves like uh, pleading, you know, they're like sort of like supplicants to her. That one guy is like actually rending his garment open. I love mm-hmm. those little figures. We see the flames of apocalypse in the background, and then on the insets. We see her on the giant TV screen, another one where she's beating the crap out of Mr. Miracle, and then her with the female Furies. This is great. I love it. I mean, I was a big fan of Matt Wagner. Always have been. But he really brings it. This is a really stylized version. It really makes the character seem even more interesting. I mean, they did a lot with her. Uh, as you felt, you never failed to mention. She was played by a man on Superman right. the Animated Series, which, again, another great little detail. This this is super. Matt, I, we love Matt Wagner. He does a great job here. Well, in the, you didn't you mentioned everything about Granny Goodness except for the face. Um, I mean, she just looks old and wrinkled, and she's got this snarl, and it's fantastically illustrated. Yes. I just absolutely love it. She's a little skinnier, like than I would think, because um, I always kind of saw her as like a, a heavy set woman. But here, she's obviously wearing her spanks or something. I don't know. She's got a pretty <laughs> tiny waist. Um, I, I am obligated to say she's hot. I think, but just because that's the way the these episodes work. But yeah, the the front piece is fantastic. I wanted to talk about the inset piece a little bit. On the back, the middle one, like, this is the piece that could give me nightmares right here because she has got the the mega rod just arched all the way back. She is beating the living hell out of Mr. Miracle, okay? She's got the the mega rod all the way back. Like, she is about to just clean his clock. You can see her face, like, going, ah! And Mr. Miracle, his arms are outstretched. He's obviously tied up. He's getting beaten in the back. And his whole face is just solemn, like – 
he's he's like he's taken this his whole life and he's just resigned to it and it's just that's the kind of crap that gives me nightmares right there sort of like in uh, uh winter soldier when they go to zap i know i'm off the reservation here but they go to zap uh, uh the winter soldier like erases memory and, and the thing that bothers me about it is when they put the mouth guard in he opens his mouth like he knows it's coming he knows the torture's coming and it's just that whole idea of being a torture victim and just accepting it it's just so uh, freaks me out they mentioned in the listing something I didn't know about that uh, Scott's Scott Free's beliefs uh, and his like inherent goodness was was such that it actually gave Granny pause. And it says Darkseid, however, suspected Granny's weakness and intervened, preventing Granny from changing her ways. I didn't know that that was ever an angle. I mean, I didn't really think about it because I didn't read a lot of New Gods comics. But the way she's always presented is that she is just as evil as Darkseid. But no, she actually had a little bit of a crisis of conscience, and the Darkseid stepped in. I thought that's a nice little detail. And it must have been recent because I don't remember that either. It was probably during the New God series or something. But uh, and you know, I think it's fair to say I think Granny Goodness genuinely loves her quote unquote children. I think she does, but it's just in a warped, twisted way that we don't understand. You know, she just sees this is how she's supposed to raise them. I mean, she doesn't get as much credit as she should because literally, she she is responsible for the brainwashing that pretty much powers all of Darkseid's armies. I mean, everything other than like the Parademons, which are monsters, but all of his like human quote-unquote human, troops and, 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 and people that live on this planet, it's because of her, you know, all her and all her orphanages that she runs around the place. So it's a it's a imp- impressive character. So, yeah. of course, her border's black. You know, again, Jack Kirby gets the creative by credit. Uh, Robert Greenberger does the entry again, but uh, he filled the page for the most part this time. So way to go. There's a lot to say about her. And, of course, if you want more, you can check her out again, uh, Kirby Cast. And also, we just recently talked about her on the Justice League International podcast, and we will be again next month. So you should check that out. And uh, you can watch for her uh, um, sooner or later. She'll show up in the Justice League Unlimited uh, or JLU cast where uh, Kristen and Cindy talk about the cartoons because she definitely appeared there. Yep. First, first appearance, Mr. Miracle number two. Oh, by the way, and I love the the weird little uh, pattern that Matt Wagner gets on the scales of her outfit. I'm not exactly sure how he got that. It might be like an ink pad kind of thing because oh, wow. it, it fades yeah. in and out, but it's really effective, very sharp. It's, it's oh, just great piece. Just great, great piece. Okay. All right. Next up is Christopher Chance, the human target, TV star, Woo. human target, created by Lynn Ween and Carmen Infantino. This is drawn, though, by Dick Giordano because I think – Infantino, I think, drew, like, the first appearance, and, like, that was it. Giordano really, I think, uh, had a, uh, a hankering for this character and drew a lot of the appearances. And um, so on the um, the main image, it's very postery. Uh, you can see this being the cover to, like, Human Target number one. It's got him in a gun sights, and he's pointing his gun at somebody who's shooting at him. There's a classic car, pretty girl in the background. Um, it's not him in his, in his costume, because he had a costume. At one really? Point. Yeah, he had a. Um, at one point, he wore a, um, a white bodysuit with hmm. uh, with a target, the literal the target logo, uh, which you know now we know as something else on his chest. But here, he's just in his regular work clothes and stuff. So he first appeared in Action Comics number four nineteen, which is just kind of random. And uh, like a lot of characters in the DC universe, he's an Olympic level athlete and superb hand to hand combatant. Well, I'm glad you mentioned TV star because I think that is exactly why this entry's here. And I think that's why he's not in a costume right. is because yeah. this is, you know, keep in mind, this is November 1990. The TV show premiered in 1992, two years away. But the way TV works and all this stuff, it was probably already in development or they were already shopping it around. So I would think that's why they included this to try and, you know, raise the work. Kind of like they did it with Blackhawks. You know, they were when that was in development, they kept putting a series out there and stuff. Yep. And it was starring Rick Springfield. 
Rick Springfield was uh, the human target. So, um, you know, one of the things I like about his shtick is where, you know, as, as a PI, he finds out, you know, finds people who are, you know, being a target for assassination. And he goes into disguise and actually, you know, impersonates them to try and flush out the, the assassin, which I thought was pretty cool. And uh, Mark Wade did a great job in this entry. You know, I, I bagged on the Cheetah entry, right? Because I said we didn't really get into her personality. This entry does exceptionally good in getting into the personality of the character. He's and I thought about that his was. compassionate nature, his right sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really good. And of course, it's red for hero. Uh, and uh, what else? I had another thing here. Oh, okay. So it had been the, the reason why I think this was side of the TV show, right? Is because in the last four years, this character had only appeared once, and that was in a action comics in the previous year. That was it. And uh, so, and the, and there was a human target special, which came out a year from now in November 1991, which was like a halfway step between this entry here and the TV series premiering. So again, I think this is all gearing up for TV. Rick Springfield, woo! I also like that the insets are different sizes and orientations. Dick Giordano's oh. like, I do what I want. I'm going to do these these this way. Because we see one yep. of him, there's like a double width panel, and you see him in all his different identities, and then another one where he's um, he's uh, getting, uh, you see him as a young guy, and there's a bad guy shooting another guy. And it's uh, so it, I, I like that change in format a little. That's cool. Yep, and the bottom one is very good. It would have been great as Serpent in the original Who's Who because yes. it does show you all these disguised faces and him doing all these different moves. And the other one, you talked about the person shooting, that's actually his dad getting shot where he tried to save his dad. Right, that's him as a young uh, man in the background. Yep, so uh, I think he's th- uh, he's thinking about Jesse's girl. Uh, anyway, so uh, in that first appearance you mentioned in Action Comics is 1972, so he's been around a long time. I think this character is still ripe for uh, potential. It's a really interesting concept. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I never saw the TV show. I was kind of interested because at the time it was still novel that there was a, you know, comic book superhero right. series. But I just never got – and it, it came and went very quickly. So I never yeah. really even got a chance to watch it. So, And it has fallen down the memory hole because it's, like, not available anywhere. You can't get it. I don't, I don't think it ran long enough for anybody to figure that there's a market for it. But you never it know. It definitely didn't have a second season. No. I didn't see how many episodes it went. No. But, yeah. So next up we have a double listing, uh, the KG Beast – and the NKV Demon, uh, which... If I may, if I can stop you for just a second, this is an interesting bit of a hiccup here. So you're covering this entry. I wasn't ready for this entry, okay? Because if you look at the cover of this entry, you know, it lists everybody alphabetically. KG Beast actually comes much later. They alphabetize KG Beast by the second half, the NKV Demon. So when I did my entries, I alphabetized them by what was on the cover. And, oh, you're and right. now That's that, weird. And now that, you know, everyone's taken theirs out of the wrapper, who knows how we actually came packaged, uh, where the entry fell. But that is an interesting alphabetizing sort of – I think what happened was they were going to do an entry for NKV Demon, and the last minute they said, no, 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 add KG Beast. And so they had to – even though it's out of alphabetic order on the cover, they, that's how they did it. So either way, please, uh, back into KG Beast. All right, maybe so. Um, it is hard for me to take KG Beast seriously because <laughs> of the most famous thing where – um, he's uh, Batman has him off dangling off a roof and he's got his arm wrapped around with this cord and Batman's like, oh, I got you. And KG Beast, I guess in the idea is showing what a badass he is, takes out an axe and severs his own arm to free himself from Batman's trap. When, of course, he could have just used the axe to sever the cord that was attached to his arm as opposed to cutting his own arm off. It just makes KG Beast look like an idiot. Uh, I mean, yes, a tough guy, but just also really stupid. So okay. I, I have some feedback on that. Yes, um, they, they did talk about that. Uh, I, 
one of our buddies, I think it was Jay Jones or Derek Crabb, I can't remember which, pointed us to an interview where they revealed that the cable, the, the cord was colored wrong. They colored it brown in the comic. It was supposed to be colored gray as steel. It's supposed to be a steel cable. The axe couldn't cut, which is why he cut his hand off. The, the writer or artist was quoting that saying they screwed it up. That's why everyone, like you said, thought it was weird. Now, I think it's sort of ironic you bagging on somebody who cut their own hand off, considering Aquaman did that famously in the Justice League Unlimited episodes. Just saying. And if really – is that really the one thing you have trouble taking uh, KGB seriously? When I'm looking at him in his short shorts, his thigh-high boots, and his open stomach slits, really? that That's the hard part? It, is a, it is a very rough trade outfit. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I, the, <laughs> these – neither one – I NK, NKV Demon, I have just no memory of at all because – I was reading Batman number number 417. I guess eventually they'll be getting to it soon in the next 10 years on Nightcast. But uh, by the time NKV Demon came around, I had stopped reading the book. So I, okay. I was not at all. And I, and I believe me, I hate to say this because you know, but that inset yep. by Jim Aparo is not that great. Batman looks weird. His head is way too tiny. It's just – it's not one of Aparo's best pieces. And neither one of these characters I don't think are particularly – visually compelling. Uh, I don't know. They're just kind of like, to me, they're just kind of boring muscle big guys. I love the concept. I really do. These are both former Soviet uh, agents who end up get, getting caught up in, uh, in, in, in plots and coming to America. Like, for example, KGBs came here to kill uh, 10 people that uh, he felt were uh, there's something to do with the Soviet Union. And then NKD, NKV Demon goes to kill 10 people in the Soviet Union he felt were too tied to Glasnost. So, I mean, it's it, really cool concepts. And I love Jim Aparo, too. These are not his better years. We know that. We've established that. And I think it would have been better served by a different artist, I think. But um, cool character ideas, really is. Uh, did he, let's see. Of course, it was uh, written by Peter Sanderson. And um, it, it, I think this is the first maybe even the only double entry we get in the whole thing. I don't know. We'll have to see as we go through this. And uh, Batman at this point was on issue 456, uh, which, by the way, the next month after this is where Tim will actually graduate, officially graduate to becoming Robin. And like you said, in about 10 years, they'll get to it on Nightcast. Or you can uh, – Michael Bailey might touch on it too with his Overlooked Dark Knight. I'm not sure. But other than that, I don't have a lot to say, unfortunately. I didn't know until this listening that NKV Demon was dead because it mentions uh, that he gets shot and then explosives get saw, say setting off explosives the assassin carried that destroyed his body so he's like obliterated i didn't know that i, oh. I, I thought he was still around or something there is something i want to mention here uh sanderson straight up calls it out when because famously besides kgb cutting a kgb's cutting his hand off there's also the thing where batman left kgb's in the sewer to die right yes and there's been a lot of arguing about whether he really left him there to die or not sanderson straight up calls it out he says um he locked him in the sewer right Dark Knight barricaded the door to the room which he was, had entered and later informed the police that KGB was trapped, presumably waiting long enough for whatever his name is, to have suffocated. <laughs> he says right there, Batman intended to kill the guy and didn't tell the cops till after he'd be dead. Wow. <laughs> Pretty ballsy. I don't have to kill you, but I don't have to save you or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, those, those are those guys. Next up is the Kunz. Everybody's favorite hard-to-say alien race first appeared in Adventure Comics number 345, drawn by Pat Broderick. Uh, it's a pretty grim image of them uh, having completely slaughtered an alien race 
we see uh, the body of one of these tentacled creatures, and it's blood. There's blood on its chest with, like, bones sticking out of its chest, mm-hmm. which is a very violent image for who's who. Much more gory and explicit than you expect. In the background, we see a couple of Kuns ordering a bunch of the aliens and kind of in, like, frog marching them along. And then they see that, like, they've completely burned all their homes. Like, it looks like... Uh, you know, like something out of Vietnam or something. This it's just this massive conflagration. It's a really dark image. I'm surprised. Well it's well it's very dark. It's one of my favorites actually in the issue, just because Broderick really, really used the full page. I mean every inch of this thing is drawn and it's a great usage of the space. I mean it's it, it is horrible and upsetting, but it's extremely well rendered. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, it is. It 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 tells you everything about the kuns that you need to know that they're vicious sons of bitches. So, yeah. uh, and then we see actually on the instant one of them watching a ship blow up, and he's smiling. So these are really mean guys, you know. <laughs> the, the one criticism I well I, I might have I don't know I got one big criticism here is um, you mentioned it there. You said first appearance action comics, right? Well, when they Adventure. did the what's that Adventure comic? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, when they did the dominators an issue two ago it said first appearance in 30th century and first appearance in 20th century which i wish they had done here again because this is a there's a retcon here where they talk about all the cahoon stuff in 20th century well they were 30th century first they didn't get reintroduced until the invasion series where they show up in the 20th century so i feel like there should have been a 30th century first appearance and 20th century first appearance like there was on dominators but anyway also the entry mentions uh, nemesis kid which is of course dr ange's favorite which is really twisted because it's a horrible person and he did horrible things, so it just makes me question Dr. Andrew's Hippocratic Oath. Anyway, um, uh, at this month, uh, oddly enough, Legion must have skipped a month in publication because issue 12 was still the current issue on the shelf as it was last month, and that's the one where they reformed the Legion. And of course, if you want more on the Cahoons, please visit the Legion of Super Bloggers or uh, check out the Invasion First Strike Invasion podcast. And the border around this one is orange, and the text is written by Mark Wade. All right. Next up is Lightning Lord, one of the Legion of Superheroes. Well, here he's listed as a supporting cast. Back when I knew him as Lightning Lord, he was a bad guy. He was a full-on bad guy. And it mentions former member of the Legion of Supervillains. First appeared in Superman number 147. Goes all the way back to 1961. I realize they've been around this long. On the inset, it's drawn by um, Craig Brasfield and Al Gordon. I believe he's the one who did the... um, Geoforce listing that we kind of yeah. goofed on in the first issue. Yeah. On the inset, we see him with the other Legion of Supervillains, and they're using their powers and stuff. I, like I said, it gives into the history. I, until I got to this listing, I had no idea this was a thing, like that he had turned or he was a different character or anything like that. I was, again, I'm familiar with, I'm unfamiliar with any of this iteration of the Legion of Superheroes. So it's, he's kind of not as much a bad guy now. Yeah, he reformed. And, you know, because he's, he's Lightning Lad and Lightning Lass's brother, you know, they sort of brought him back in. And now he's running the family plantation back home. And he was a great supporting character in that Legion uh, 5YL book. He really, really was. I'm glad you mentioned the supporting cast of the Blue Label, which was fantastic. Um, some of the weird things on this thing, like, you know, there's a whole weird thing about the character where most people born on Winath are born as twins. He was not. He was born as sort of a – they almost see it as a disfigurement because he didn't have a twin. And that's kind of what drove him nuts. And there's some really kind of creepy, almost Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver kind of stuff with his sister there going on. Um, but anyway, now by this point he was good, so which was great. And, of course, written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, so every square inch of this thing's covered with text. I mean they really always went text-heavy when they did their entries. And the only thing that's kind of um, – by the way, Craig Brasfield, Brasfield, I think he did a pretty good job. I mean he, I, compared to the other entries he's done, I like this one. The backgrounds, you know, got full. I love the lightning effect yeah, it's on, a, his, it's on the a, front. Yeah, it's nice. 
really well done. So I thought Braswell did a really nice entry. I mean, I was like, look at this. I'm like, wow, okay. And then the only thing I was going to mention here was I thought it was odd that he's listed as Lightning Lord when it seems like everyone else from the Five Whales listed by their their name. name. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and he's not Lightning Lord at this point. He is Mechrans at this point because he's not even a villain anymore. So, anyway, um, Legion of Super Vloggers. Go check it out, folks. All right, next up. Oh, this is a good one. Light Ray. As joined by Art Adams, uh, oh we are always going to be waxing Art Adams' car, probably because he deserves it, because he really brings it. This piece of light ray flying through the ground and then looking skeptically behind him at the bad guys on the left-hand side. Well, actually, all the villains are behind him, and then we also mm-hmm. see Orion. Um, this looks like a presentation piece for like the light ray, the uh, the New Gods TV series. Like yeah. if you wanted to sell somebody on the, the cast of wacky characters that are going to take on Darkseid every week, this is your book. This is your drawing. It's it's beautiful. I absolutely love it. It makes Light Ray look really cool. This could uh, be a poster. Seriously. Yeah, it's just great. We see Darkseid, Granny Goodness, Decide, a Power Demon, Decide, Calabac, Mantis, uh, Orion, as I mentioned. It's really, really great. And um, we see him on the inset with Orion. We see him using his powers. We see him with his with his um, his girlfriend. It's, it's just great. It, I love I love that, that they got Art Adams to do it. And the randomness by which Art Adams did these pieces. Gorilla Garage, <laughs> Light Ray. I have to assume that he asked for these. I can't, I I, think, I, yeah. I can't imagine anybody saying, let's give him Light Ray and Gorilla Garage. So that, I'm feeling that's... that's <laughs> You know, Art Adams just like, let me do these characters. Well, you know, you know what? I'm a little embarrassed to say we didn't even mention with him drawing Gorilla Grodd last time that he he went ahead and did that series for Dark Horse, all about a gorilla. Um, that's right. Yeah. Monkey so Man anyway, and, Monkey Man and O'Brien. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay, so this is absolutely stunning. Uh, the, the other characters to mention too is his girlfriend's on the cover, uh, Eve Donner. She's being held hostage by uh, Desaad. And then in the top right hand corner is the new uh, bug or new forager or whatever. I don't remember what name she went by. She was the new God's book after the the, the, the usual bug forager character had died or disappeared, or whatever. Um, she she took over. So in, in this kind of fitting, I, I don't remember this era of new gods, but it mentions his brother was killed by the bug. So I got to assume Light Ray working with her probably there was some like drama there probably, which would have been kind of cool. Talk about him and Orion are like brothers. And I mean, he's he's probably one of my favorite new gods, honestly. As much as you know, Orion's pretty cool and Mister Miracle's pretty cool. Mister Miracle and Light Ray are the two most superhero like. You know, members of the New Gods, really, and they're the ones that really appeal to me the most. And in fact, he mentions that he ahead. joins the Justice League. Exactly right. Justice League, uh, Justice League of America, number forty-two is on the sh- uh, forty-four is on the shelves. Already talked about that. He joined in Justice League forty-two, so he had just been a member for about two months or three months, really, if you look at it that way. So, uh, love this, love, love, love this character. And of course, again, Jack Kirby gets creator credit. Uh, Peter Sanderson did the art, uh, did the text. So, of course, it seems to run short. They, there could have been more stuff there. Anyway, uh, they, should, they could have just added, he's cooler than Fastback, which would have saved everyone some time. But anyway, for more on him, again, check out KirbyCast. Also check out in future episodes, it's a ways away, but future episodes of Justice League International. Next up is Persuader, another legion of uh, superheroes or ancillary characters, a former member of the Fatal Five. This is drawn by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Now, I am going to say something that I'm going to bet is surprise every one of you out there listening. <laughs> this is my favorite Kurt Swan Murphy Anderson drawing, and I can't believe I'm saying that about a Legion character. Right, this is right. Like everything I don't like in one place, but this is really good. I love one of my beasts with Kurt Swan, and I know Chris Franklin has already 
cursing the heavens now as I say this. But one of the things I don't like about Kurtz one is to me his 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 approaches to any given camera angle to me are always very flat. Um, there's no, there's no, the camera's not really placed in anything other than kind of a mid-level shot and everything's just sort of straight on, like you're looking at it, uh, uh, like a play or something, so it's just straight on. But this has a real depth to it, as the persuader is swinging his axe straight into the foreground, and then he's kind of, not disappearing, but he's, he's, you know, perspectiving off, that's not a word, but off into the background <laughs> a little bit. It just has a real sense of movement that I don't always think about when I think of Kurt Swan's work. I like Murphy Anderson doing the inking on it. I like his this new costume that he's got. We see him um, in his uh, previous costume where he kind of looks like Pharaoh Lad. Uh, but this one I like. This is the more kind of savagey looking thing that he's got going on. He still has that face mask. This, like I said, this I was shocked that this was drawn by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. I liked it so much. So this I, I put this as my number one piece by them. Wow, that says a lot because we've seen a lot of Kurt Swan and uh, Murphy Anderson together pieces in the history of Who's Who, and there's some there's some that really wowed me. I, I think Murphy Anderson is a hell of an inker for Kurt Swan. Actually, I think he's the best inker he ever had. But um, as much as we've talked about it, Ty Templeton inking Kurt Swan looks great. I think I still think Murphy Anderson is the best one. Anyway, this piece I had to go back and check twice. Like I was like, really? This is Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson? Not because of the perspective. Although you, now that you bring it up, that's a good point. But just that they did such a great job sort of mimicking the Keith Giffen dirty 30th century. Because, you know, by this point, the, the, the 5YL, everything is dystopian. Everything's a mess. Everything's in patches and ripped up and shredded and got dirt and filth and everything. That's the way that the universe looks at this point. And that's what they gave you here. They gave you the tattered jacket. They gave you his pants with patches missing. They gave you um, – actually, I think that's miscolored. It looks like his leg's supposed to be showing through on those pants. But anyway um, – wrinkles and just a mess and everything and and axe has lots of little just wear and tear on it and i was like i couldn't believe this was by these classic artists and it i love it i absolutely love it i love the mimicking sort of the dystopian setting so uh, i love the axe it's called a fission blade for, uh, and, they, and it's from world war seven also called the atomic axe Ooh, how cool is that and uh the, the biggest thing always for me about the fatal five just cracks me up the, the legion's facing the sun eater right which is basically a space cloud and so what does the legion do they gather together five cutthroat criminals to help them. Really? A guy with an axe is going to fight a space cloud? Anyway. Let's get the giant guy with the exposed brain. Let's get him. Right. Exactly. They get these five guys together, right, to say, help us save the universe. You live here, too. And then those guys go off and form the Fatal Five. Really? You created your own worst enemy. It's like if the... Yeah, it's like it's like if the Super Friends created the Legion of Doom by accident or something. It's like, (laughs) So, just, door. Anyway, um... First appearance all the way back to 1967. And, of course, you get the insets in the inset where he's got his mask off and he looks like, you know, kind of actually a little debonair with a bald and little tiny, you know, Clark Gable mustache or whatever. But, um, yeah, interesting character. Uh, they did a lot with him, and, and I like I love the new look. I agree with you. People should check out Legion of Superbloggers as well. By I, I like the little little commentary that Tom and Mary Beerbaum, who wrote this, throw in. It mentions at the end, it says, The scars of many battles with the Legion and the loss of the Empress seem to have taken their toll on the Persuader. The man who was once motivated only by a need to prove his manhood is now more interested in simply making a living the best way he knows how. The difference is lost on his victims. I like that. <laughs> I like that idea that, like, you know, in, in we're all the stars of our own movie. And so to the persuader, whose alter ego is Nguyen Chun Ti, you know, he's, like, not a bad guy anymore. But if you're still his victim, what do you care? So right. I, I like that. I thought that was a great little detail that they threw in. And they, 
uh, they are bursting at the seams with the text. The text yeah, actually always. on powers and weapons, it literally almost bumps up against the art. It actually <laughs> goes an extra line, which you don't see anywhere else. There, that's that's how desperate they were to get in those three extra words. That's Tom and Mary Beerbaum. They they don't know when to cut the words out. <laughs> and if you read uh, the the five YL stuff, yeah, they 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 would have these huge text pages in the back and stuff like that. And I love it, but some people might be like, too many words, you know, especially nowadays. All right, next up, Shag, get it out of your system, Phantom Lady by Adam Hughes. Whew, she's hot. <laughs> now, I, but, mean, but it's, I mean, come on, it's Adam Hughes. Adam is, Hughes, you don't hire him to draw, you know, a mailbox. You hire him to draw a sexy lady. This is the one time I will actually endorse what Shag is saying in that because the, <laughs> the Phantom Lady was designed to be this character. That's true. Uh, if you go all the way back to her first appearance, which it mentions here, Police Comics number one in August 1941, she was given this absurd costume. I mean, she is Vampirella before Vampirella. And if you look at all those covers, she got her own magazine, too. That's how popular she was because I guess, you know, teenage boys in the 40s needed to, you know, take care of things themselves as well. And, oh, my uh, gosh. I, but you went you, there, not me. <laughs> if you look at the covers, they are all salacious they are all her tied up with her boobs spilling out i mean it's the kind of thing where i'm imagining that if you a kid brought that home for 10 cents your 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 mom would have been like huh? you know didn't didn't wortham actually i don't know if it was wortham or another paper i read where they actually used covers of phantom yes, way to go they did. really yes he had yeah. and he had a term for it called headlights which which mm. indicated that it was any image that primarily focused on women's breasts, and that's what the Phantom Lady covers are. They're drawn by Matt Baker, who drew really beautiful women, very glamorous-looking women, and that's just that's it, straight up what it was. It was the perils of Pauline, but she was a superhero, but she was like a super sexy uh, superheroine. And well, so- here, let, let, let me read this little quote. This explains it perfectly. A modification of exercise tights in the old school colors of yellow and green. The costumes meant as a dis- um, meant to be as distracting as it is functional. And is daring. Uh, I'm sorry. And it's daring. Uh, D, whatever it talks about it says it guarantees that no male observer ever gets a good look at D's face. That's the whole point of the costume is so that the guy never sees her face. Right there, you go. There's a great panel in. Oh shoot! I wish I could remember what book it was, but it's there's a thing where um, I think it's World's Funnest. I think I can't exactly remember um, where the where the um, the freedom fighters show up. And a bunch of characters are talking to the Freedom Fighters, and we see Phantom Lady standing next to Human Bomb. Now, of course, the Human Bomb, we only see his eyes, because he's got he's in one of those hazmat suits. And we see that as Phantom Lady is talking, Human Bomb is just looking at her cleavage. Like, that's all he's staring oh, at. <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what it was. I mean, this is when she was, um, she had, she first appeared, the new version, was in Action Comics Weekly, number 636. She was part of that uh, part of that uh, weekly iteration of the title. So this, this character's been around a long time. I, I haven't. I don't remember much about the Action Comics strip. I read it. I read Action Comics Weekly. I think I got a reissue with that title. Because <laughs> we're reading the word balloons. You yeah, were- exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just it's hard for me to get past this character to anything other than what she was sort of designed for. And and in and in the three panels in the back, all three feature her cleavage and in. in prominent ways is one where she's being menaced by a guy with she's she's trussed up of course and there's the guy with a knife and there's another one where she's using her her darkness ray and this total side boob going on there and there's another one her without a costume and she's in kind of a tank top so i mean again you don't hire adam hughes to draw a phantom lady unless you're trying to achieve a certain effect (laughs) now here's something i'm curious if you noticed again you don't notice her face did you notice when you go back to the phantom lady entry she's just floating 
there, there's no chair. Like she's clearly right. in a sitting yeah. position. Yeah. Right. She's sitting on a desk, and, and a then, chair, something. Right. And the, her cape is clearly sitting on an object because it's buck, right. buckling off the side. But it's not there. The only Never thing you can there. see is her. And I don't know whether it's sort of the same sort of thing. Like maybe he was even thinking to himself, I'll just draw her and see, see if anyone even notices that furniture's not here. Or if it's supposed to be representative of her dark gray, uh, you know, blackness. I don't know. But there's a spotlight where you can see this window and there's this creepy dude. In like, with a pair of scissors. You got those from Kronos as he's about to right. try and stab Phantom Lady. It's like a skeleton guy with a pair of scissors. It's so weird. And she's holding up the Phantom Lady sign. So, again, until we did this podcast, I never noticed the furniture was missing because I wasn't looking at her face. I do like that they acknowledge the legacy and where the costume comes from. That made me very happy. They talk about Sandra Knight, the original Phantom Lady. They say that she operated in World War II, which is great. Although it contradicts the whole first appearance thing here because it talks about first appearance historical. That's talking about Sandra Knight. Then it says current version or current one, which is about uh, D. Tyler. So why couldn't they do that for Cheetah? You know, mm-hmm. if it's two different versions, I don't know why you couldn't. Maybe because they, maybe because the Cheetah versions don't exist in continuity anymore. I don't know, but it deals a lot with Washington corruption in, in France and things like that. Now, as you said, she mentioned she appeared in Action Comics Weekly. Now she didn't really. It didn't really make her famous. So she was that in 1989. Then really, she kind of didn't go anywhere for a while. And she was about to become a supporting character in the Starman book, the the Will Payton one. So. I, you know, I dig that. So, all right. And then, uh, again, if you want more on Phantom Lady, you should check out the Action Weekly, Action Comics Weekly podcast, or eventually the Starman uh, Manhunter Adventure Hour. We'll get to the issues where Phantom Lady appears, or you could just look in any teenage boy's bedroom. So, there you go. Uh, okay, so next up, Plastic Man, the one, the original, the Elastic Man, drawn by, uh, I just I threw that in for you, uh, drawn by Hilary Barda. This is a rare piece in that we've got a word balloon where we've got a bunch of goons climbing. This is um, abstract. You talk about the Phantom Lady one, which is meant to be somewhat abstract. This one is abstract, and then it's Plastic Man's giant. He's right. galactic size, and you've got all these goons crawling all over him, and he says, hey, that tickles. So, um, And you've even got somebody literally stabbing him in the shoulder. Uh, with a giant cleaver, and another guy sawing into his arm, but of course... There's a guy biting him and pulling out a chunk yeah. of his shoulder, too, yeah. Right. Now, uh, before we get to our thoughts on Plastic Man, and I have some thoughts, because I love this character, we, of course, have a resident expert on Plastic Man, and that is Max Romero, who is the host of the Plasticast, which is uh, can be found right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So we invited Max to offer his thoughts on this uh, listing on Plastic Man. So want to uh, take it away, Max. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. When I first looked over this Who's Who entry, I thought it was obviously referring heavily to the 1988 miniseries by Phil Foglio and Hilary Barda. And lo and behold, take a look at who wrote this entry. Phil Foglio, with art by Hilary Barda. Now, this is going to be shocking to some listeners out there, but this is not my favorite version of Plas. I know this miniseries was how a lot of people were introduced to Plastic Man, but for me it leaned heavy on a tone that I think has weighed the character down for years. Cartoonish more than funny, wacky more than witty. It's no shocker that the same notes find their way into this who's who entry, which kind of gets a shrug for me. It completely ignores the learning gratitude and kindness from a monk part of Plastic Man's classic origin, and instead leaves his choice to be a hero up to the flip of a coin. And it pushes the idea that Plaz is essentially insane, an idea I hate. I still love the Hilary Barta art though, which I also dug in the miniseries. His broad style fits, and that splash page has an echo of the great Jack Cole's groundbreaking art. I would have liked something more dynamic. This is Plastic Man, let's see him stretch. But for some reason, these who's who entries always seem shy about that. I also like that under the powers and weapons section, readers are given a tiny bit of an explanation on why Plastic Man can lift heavy things, 
even when he stretched thin. The acid that gave him his powers also made him super dense. No pun intended. It also mentions that while he can change shape, he can't change color, which has been a running gag since the Golden Age. I'm going to point out that this entry also acts as an entry for Woozy Winks, too. I'm always happy to see Woozy, but Foglio leans even harder on the idea that Woozy is crazy, too. Literally, he just got released from Arkham Asylum. Ugh. For the most part, Woozy comes out unscathed, though. He's still Plastic Man's loyal, if not very sharp, partner in crime fighting. Basically, this entry is pushing a new origin for Plastic Man that was introduced in a miniseries that came out two years earlier. Most of it didn't stick, but unfortunately, the tone of it did, and it's a characterization Plaz is only now starting to shake off. Plastic Man is very much the hero of last resort? Come on! Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm glad you didn't have to flip a coin or anything. Wait, what do you mean you flipped a coin? You know, I told Max just the other day, when he and I were talking, that when I, like... He is the voice of Plastic Man now, or or maybe it's Bad Luck Hula. I don't know, whatever. But like his voice, like I can't think of Plastic Man and his without thinking of his voice. They go together to me. Like I almost would rather he'd like be the narrator of the Plastic Man cartoon or something. I just love his voice. <laughs> I just think it's perfect for the character. Yes, I agree. I, it's hard for me to separate the two of them now because of course he's been running the It's Plastic Man blog for a long time as well. On top of doing the Plastic Man show. Um, it's funny. I didn't expect Max to be as kind of kind of down on this listing as he was, but I also completely understand what he's saying. Yeah. Um, I I think as for someone like me who, even though I love Plastic Man, if I've always loved Plastic Man, I'm not like I just I don't worry about the minutia of it. Kind of like of like the specific like oh this version of of that he's kind of crazy. That stuff just doesn't bother me because I'm like, as long as he's stretching and doing funny stuff, that's what I like about Plastic Man. But, I mean, I'm kind of that way about Aquaman. Like, I get into the weeds on Aquaman and went to other people, they don't. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You get all bent out of shape about Orm and his, whether he's a brother or blah, blah, blah. I absolutely do. So I completely understand Max's point of view. That's it. I do like this version of Plastic Man. I love this listing. The Hillary Barta drawing is terrific. I like that it's kind of a representational cover. It reminds me a little bit of the Jack Cole covers, and what they were meant—they mm. were more abstract. They're not meant to be, you know, like literal. I like all these goons attacking Plastic Man. They got guns. It reminds me kind of a little bit of the um, Batman TV show. You know, the opening credits of those—you know—all the crooks oh, chasing yeah. after oh, the villains, yeah. and we see him using his powers and stuff. It's interesting that um, they don't bother for a historic. They do the historical first appearance, but no, no later first appearance. I thought the same thing. I was saying, thinking, that's all interesting. The plastic Man. You're like, no, wait a minute. That's not – because in the 60s version, they introduced that there was a son of Plastic Man, and that was the Plastic Man they were following in that series. Now, that's been retconned out, but it's sort of funny that all the different iterations of Plastic Man are just sort of swept away. It's like, no, it's all police comics, number one. That's that's fine. It's all the same thing, which, as, right. you'll, as, you'll, as you'll remember – that was also the first appearance of Phantom Lady. So what are the odds that you have two oh, yeah. characters in a row that appeared in, first appeared in the same comic book? Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I didn't even pick up on that. All right. Well, I, I'm, I made a lot of the same notes that Max said already. You know, But the biggest one to me, though, was the whole thing about how plastic like, – I remember when we covered the previous entry about how he stumbled in and found like a, a monk, some like maybe a Tibetan monk or something like that who like guided him towards being a hero. Right. And then when I'm reading this, I'm like, where is all that stuff? So I'm glad Max brought it up. And of course, Phil Foglio is doing the, the text and Hillary Bard is doing the art. It's a great piece. The red border for hero, as we would know. Um, creator credit to Jack Cole, which is very cool, uh, especially since it was created not for DC Comics. 
you know, surprising right. that he still has a creator credit for that. I guess maybe that's carried over from the police comics days. I don't really know how that works, you know, with the logistics. But um, so uh, he had appeared in the 1988 miniseries, as we talked about. Uh, and really the only other place he'd appeared was the Young All-Stars, oddly enough. And I seriously doubt Roy Thomas treated him as a funny character there because he was always like the FBI agent or whatever, in, in whenever Roy Thomas wrote him. So, and uh, we've already talked about Plastic Cast, but I will mention also, check out, again, the Fire Order Podcast Summer Sampler, because there is a Plastic Cast segment on there, and yours truly gets to make an appearance. So, My big thing with him, when I, I think I first discovered him when he guest starred on the Super Friends. Uh, mm. I loved it. That, that show, I mean, again, like, like for most of it, that show was very formative. But um, in the, in the storyline where it's about a computer that goes haywire, and they find that a mouse has gotten has crawled into the computer and they can't get it out. And um, Superman's like, I could destroy the uh, machine, and but that might hurt the poor mouse. And they're like, what are we going to do? And Batman, I think it's Batman. He's like, there's only one suggestion. Let's get our friend Plastic Man. And I just remember being like, even as a kid, I was like, what? Like you could like, I don't think I recognize that you could bring other superheroes into the Super Friends TV show. They just have to show right. up and they get Plastic Man to show up just for that one moment. And he reaches his arm into the the the, uh, the the computer and pulls out the mouse. And I do want to mention, just as a fun fact, in that one cameo appearance, he is voiced by Norman Alden, who, of course, I had the chance to interview because he also played Aquaman. Uh, so there you go. Two of my favorite interesting. characters by the same guy. Clearly, they must have been working up to that Plastic Man animated series that you know, they were they produced. Because otherwise, they would have just gone, why doesn't Ray Palmer, the Adam, just go get the mouse? Because that makes more sense. But anyway. Maybe so. But uh, anyway, thanks, uh, Max, for offering your thoughts on Plastic Man. That was a lot of fun. And I noticed I did not give my origin on Plastic Man because I actually do that on the Plastic Cast uh, segment of the sampler. There you go. Next up is Rocket Red. Woohoo! Drawn by Bart Sears. Woohoo! Uh, I, won't, I won't say he was a former instructor at the Joe Kubert School when I was there. I never had Bart. My friends did. I just didn't have him. So I, I don't call him my former instructor, even though him and I uh, crossed paths numerous times. Okay. The one detail. Don't, don't. What? Only talk positively about this, or I will, I will, I will salt your yard. Oh, wow, that's weird. Okay, the one detail though, I think it's very funny. Is it says okay, it gives height and weight, right? Dimitri, his height is six seven, seven nine in the armor. Okay, weight two hundred thirty five pounds, three hundred seventy seven in the armor. That giant suit only weighs one hundred forty pounds. That it's because it's a po- it's apocalyptic armor. Oh, sure, of course. Okay, fine. All right, I'm not buying that. Anyway, the drawing of Rocket Red looks terrific. Uh, Bart Sears is, I think, I, Bart loved to get into, like, metallic modeling. He was mm-hmm. big on tones and sheen and stuff like that. And Rocket Red is perfect because there's, like, 4,000 little reflections of things going on as he's blasting all these different things going around. And then the it's, de- it's definitely high-polished chrome. Yes. Um, and then we see him with his family. And then him blasting things with his powers, and then uh, him with the uh, the Justice League uh, Europe, I guess. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. with Justice yep. League Europe because mm-hmm. you see there with Power Girl and her ugly omelet costume and elongated <laughs> man and stuff. So, but yeah, it's a nice piece. It's a fantastic piece. The front piece is just freaking gorgeous. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the apocalyptic armor. Uh, I've never really loved it. I, I always love the classic Rocket Red armor. I think the classic Rocket Red armor is like one of the coolest looking designs. So this one never really grabbed me. But tell you what, if, if someone's going to make me like it, it's going to be Bart Sears. Um, just love this piece. It looks fantastic. You've already described it, so I won't waste time talking about that. But 
this character's really grown on me more as I've been doing the JLI podcast. Because originally he was fine. He was the jokey guy. He didn't really, you know, he was like the Yakov Smirnov of like, you know, the Justice League. He was, oh, look, funny Russian. Uh-huh. But the more I read about him, the more I interact with the listeners of the show and talk about stuff, the more I realize this guy is really interesting and really deep. Like one of the things that I fall in love with as I read the Justice League comics is he doesn't take any of Batman's crap. Like everyone is nervous around Batman. Everyone is cautious around Batman and, and cowards to Batman. Dimitri just talks to Batman like he's a regular dude. Like there's scenes where they're just hanging out in there and he's literally just talking to Batman like he's a regular guy. Him is probably bat hyphen man or something. You no, know, he, he doesn't even think of Batman as the big scary guy, which I love. I didn't ever notice that till someone pointed that out. Um, let's see. Lots of stuff to blaze through here. Um, Okay, so there's a history. It's not just technically about him. It's about the Rocket Red Brigade, really, a little bit. They talk about, you know, um, how Kilowog helped create the Rocket Reds in those in those Green Lantern comics, and uh, that was back in uh, the Green Lantern Corps in the first appearances, number two hundred eight, and stuff like that. And because that's actually when I first started reading Green Lantern comics, those are some of the first ones I ever read. I thought the the cover designs they did like these sort of Soviet propaganda posters almost. They looked really cool with the Rocket Reds, and I picked those up, and I just fell in love with those issues. Anyway, um, talked about how Rocket Red number seven turned out to be, you know, joined the Justice League, turned out to be a Manhunter. Dimitri's number four. Uh, they don't mention this in here, but for you Firestorm fans, uh, Mikhail Arkadin, who goes on to be one half of Firestorm, actually was in a Rocket Red armor for a while there, uh, while he was trying to control his powers as Poser. Anyway, uh, one of the things that does sort of jump out of me here is it talks about all the Rocket Reds are enhanced humans, and the suits are designed to regulate their powers. They talk about every single one of the Rocket Reds have enhanced strength, endurance, etc. Really? I, I, I see no sign of that anywhere in the Justice League comics so far that I've reread of Demetri having any superpowers whatsoever. So I'll be watching for that, but I, I don't know that he's got these abilities that they claim he has here. I don't know. You already touched on Justice League Europe. You already touched on his family. There is a wonderful panel here of him and his family. Family was always so important to Dimitri. In fact, that's why he went to Justice League Europe was because Maxwell Lord was able to get his family out of the Soviet Union into uh, Europe. He wouldn't have been able to get him to the America, but they could get him to Europe so he could be reunited with his family. That's why he joined it, which is great. Um, they talk about here, too, how uh, the Rocket Red Brigade was pretty much destroyed by the extremists, so he's kind of the last one. And uh, he, they also say here, you know, he's sort of an, he's he seems like a simple guy who enjoys the domesticated life. You know, he always has jo uh, his TV expressions are always mixed up and out of sorts, but they do talk about how he has the, he's you know, don't cross him because he's also a fighter. And that's something we all kind of forget about is that he totally kicked all the ass in those Justice League comics. So I love this guy. And I'm really just my, – my passion for him is really, really grown. First appearances are all over the board here because, you know, as we said, you got Rocket Red number one. Then you get the Rocket Red Brigade, and you're assuming Dimitri was part of it. Um, anyway, uh, right at this point, Justice League Europe number 19 was on the shelves at the same time this uh, issue was, which was the finale of the big extremist storyline. So – um, also, and of course, the, the board is red, written by Kevin Dooley and Peter Sanderson, which is not, and it's not jokey. So I thought that was impressive that uh, Kevin Dooley did that. And uh, I, lo I love, love, love this one. In case you couldn't tell, I really like it. Yeah, I think we know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next up is. I, I think the Diamond Dew has kicked in finally. I think so. Next up is uh, Star Labs, uh, one of the big locations of the DC Universe. It's a very distinctive building with that swoop based on a real building in New York City. And I have to say, um, I wish I could remember what that real building is. I tried to look it up <laughs> online, but I could not find it. But I remember 
going to New York when we were on a trip for the Kubert School because one of the uh, assignments we had to do was one a teacher made us go to a bunch of museums. Mm. And me and uh, my pal Sean Tiffany, uh, who was just on uh, the network, and um, um, Tom Zoller and a couple other people were walking, and we went by this building and we were like, holy shit, that's Star Labs. We had no, we had no, I had no idea that Star Labs was a real building, but it was. So we were just shocked at that, of course. But it makes sense that whoever designed Star Labs uh, would have you know, based it on a real building. For, for, for the answer to that question, folks, go back to some of our earlier episodes of the Fire and Water podcast where we covered DC Comics Presents because you brought that same question up before and our awesome listeners actually answered it. Oh, I in, have no memory of that. Yeah, they answered it in the comments. I don't remember what it is at this point, but if you go back in time, you can find it. Or maybe you awesome listeners will answer in the comments for us today. Uh, the this listing is drawn by Tom Grummet and Al Vey. We see Starfire uh, f- flying in front of it, and my only quibble is the perspective. Um, Starfire is about three stories tall, uh, as compared to the building. Like she's just way too big. Well, don't you there. think she's much much closer to the camera? No, she's not. She's the, the, okay. the, the perspective's off a little. But other than that, it's fine. It's an incredibly distinctive building. If you go and look up Star Labs on Wikipedia, you see that it's been in cartoons. It's, of course, now appeared in the live-action TV shows. It's been in the Flash show. Like, it's become one of the big, you know, rallying points of the DC universe, no matter whatever media you're talking about. So I, the one little thing I love is, like, on the, to, the, um, to our right, but to the building's left, I like mm-hmm. that there's like that little apartment building sitting right next to this giant lab. I think if I lived <laughs> in that apartment building, I would not want to be there. How often supervillains attack Star Lab? Right, right. Well, but think about it. This is the New York one. If Starfire's there, so it means Jeanette Clyburn worked in there. So maybe there's a reason to stay in that apartment. Maybe so. <laughs> I I wonder if Starfire was added later because uh, this is it's. It, you know, without Starfire, it's kind of a boring drawing because it's a building. And now, technically, it would have took a lot of time because there's angles, there's curves. Buildings take, you know, a lot of line work. But, like, other than Starfire, there's really nothing to, like, get your attention in this thing. But It's just a building, pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Now, uh, the, you, you mentioned this is a location I do love. You know, we, again, we get one of our different colors. We get a border for technology. It's yellow this time. Uh, it almost should have been geography, really, I would think. But either way, uh, I mentioned Jeanette Clyburn. Of course, she's with the New York one with the Titans. They do mention almost every single location. I'm just going to rattle, rattle a couple important ones off. Metropolis, of course, and they had the history of the atomic skull. Chicago dealt with the Blue Beetle. The one in Phoenix and, uh, had Keith Faulkner, who was also Rampage, which dealt with the Starman comic. San Diego dealt with Animal Man. So they really tied it well into a lot of comics. Or basically, whenever you had a comic and they wanted to use Star Labs, they'd say, oh, there's a location in this town now, you know, kind of thing. And... Um, the writer on this one was Robert Greenberger. So, and uh, I think Tom Grumman and Alvey did a nice job, given what they had. And first appearance, of course, is in Superman way back in 1971. It, was, it says here, I'm looking at a Wikipedia, it was designed by, uh, created by Carrie Bates and designed by Rich Buckler. So Rich Buckler is the, the Yay! Credited. Awesome sauce. Yep, there you go. And he really did a lot of work for himself by making this curved building. That's way <laughs> harder to draw. I mean, you could have just drawn a building. Good. Right, and now you can't use a ruler. <laughs> no, yeah, good on you, Rich. Man, that's tough. Okay, uh, next up is Troya, and uh, <laughs> the first sentence of the listing of Troya, the background of Donna Troy is confused and shrouded in mystery. Brother, you <laughs> said a mouthful. <laughs> what I really wish, I wish there was a creator credit on this one, and I wish it said, created by dot, 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 accident. 
which yeah. is what I wish it said, because which and that's the truth. A little bit of Bob Haney, was... a little bit of Marv Wolfman, uh, a little bit of everybody going on here. Yeah, Troy, this is her. I, I have never. I read this listing, and I'm still kind of like, huh, what? Like I've never <laughs> been able to quite figure out this whole what. This is just. I one jotted of these, it down, knowing that you were going to say that. Yeah, by this the way. is just one of these characters that just doesn't make any sense anymore. When you after you've redone Wonder Woman, but it's, she's such a good character, you can't just throw her out. So they have to kind of like Jerry rig. A reason to turn her into this other version. Um, the the piece, of course, is by George Perez, who, as usual, brings it. Um, we see all the different iterations of her as a baby, and then as Wonder Girl, and then later on as a slightly older Donna Troy. We see in her different costumes, and then her in her current outfit as Troy, which I think is uh, frankly a little on the busy side. Well, it's it's George Perez drawing an overly complex co- designing, I'm drawing, saying, not just doing one only he can draw. What's that? Doing doing costume only he can draw. Right, exactly. It's just too complicated for subsequent artists. So, of course, this costume got redesigned many times after he left the book because other people were like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Forget that. Um, I, like probably most every other red-blooded American, Wonder Girl was one of my earliest comic book crushes. Um, totally had the hots for Donna Troy. Still do. So, of course, uh, forgive me, she's hot. Uh, the, art, the entry is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's sexy. All the above. Um, just to fill in the history because Rob is too... Uh, cowardly to do it. Here's the gist of it. It's written by Marv Wolfman, by the way. Um, as far as how she was actually created, there were stories in the old Wonder Woman comics of Wonder Woman when she was a, a teenager, and that was Wonder Girl. And then Bob Haney comes along for the two Teen Titans, and he sees there is a Wonder Girl, not knowing that it's, it's like Superboy. It's you know Wonder Woman when she was a girl, or not caring, or not caring exactly. So he introduces her into the Teen Titans. And ads are in there when everyone should be like, wait, that's like Superboy. It doesn't work. Okay, just go. Bob, do your thing. It's fine. You're selling. Okay, you do it. So anyway, so she really was created literally by accident. Anyway, uh, at this point in this version, which is the post, oh gosh, it's post whatever at this point, post crisis, post, you know, who is Donna Troy, who is Troy, all this stuff. She, she was an orphan. She got caught up in this horrible, horrible human trafficking situation of babies. Um, the, the legendary Titans of myth, meaning like the Greek gods, saved her. Uh, from death by fire, along with several other children, and basically turned them into seeds, like little seed pods or whatever, uh, for, so that the Titans of Myth could later on be, be brought back, if you will. That's the shorthand version of it. And it gets very complicated from there, and that alone took me forever to just water that down. So, anyway, uh, lovely character, wonderful, had a horribly confusing history. So, anyway. Um, she, at this point in time, the Titans was a very important issue. I've been talking about it for months. New Teen Titans, or New Titans, I'm sorry, number 71, the beginning of the glorious Titans hunt, which brought the Teen Titans. What's that? I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. Sorry, we're having a little bit of a internet hiccup. I think the internet, I think what's happened is Philemon has actually dialed into Comcast and is trying to prevent me from talking about the Titans hunt is what's happening here. Uh, so anyway, the Titans hunt started with New Teen Titans, the New Titans number 71, and it really brought the Titans back after many years of sort of being middling. Anyway, if you want more on the Teen Titans, you can check out the Titan of the Defense podcast where they talk about the Teen Titans, or you can check out Pop Culture Affidavit, or if you would like to protest the Titans hunt, uh, I think Philemon meets, what, every other Thursday in the tree fort down on 2nd Street uh, for the uh, Jericho fan club. So go check it out. What's the name of Tom Panarese's show again? Oh, uh, well, Pop Culture Affidavit. I just mentioned it. Okay. I, well, I, I find it funny because when you say it, it sounds like you're saying Pop Culture Affidavit. And it's, it's oh, affidavit. It just I makes probably am not pronouncing it correctly. Okay. I, I have it spelled correctly. I just didn't say it right. <laughs> there's, a, there's, like, there's a guy named Al Affidavit. 
<laughs> but it, it, I think he did more of his Teen Titan stuff on his blog, which is pop culture affidavit, uh, uh, or actually with a T. Anyway, I think it was more on his blog where he did his Teen Titans stuff. Okay. All right. His friends used to write in. They get letters published in the Teen Titans. They, right. In fact, it was, if I remember, oh gosh, Tom, if oh, I'm getting this wrong. you shut up about Troya already? We're getting to my favorite list. No, no, no. It's funny. On on it's funny. It's funny. Troya. If I remember right, Tom and his buddy would write like hate letters about Donna Troy, specifically because they knew they could get published. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. He was, an, he was an early troll. All right. Proud, we're oh. very proud of Tom Panowitz. Right. There's a reason Rob is trying to stop me from talking more about Troy because he wants to get to the next entry. Yes, I do. It's my favorite one of the friggin' book. It's fantastic. It's Ultra the Multi Alien, the character find of 1966. Drawn by John K. Snyder, who, of course, rang the bell in the previous issue with his Count Vertigo drawing. So two months in a row, he's produced my favorite listing. I don't care what anyone says. I've always loved this character, as goofy as he is. First appeared in Mystery in Space number 103. This drawing by John K. Snyder is off the charts great. I even liked it more. I like it more than the Count Vertigo one, where we see Ultra floating in space, and then we have these little inset panels showing you the four alien races that he's made up of. There's like an electric guy, there's like a bird guy, and there's like this kind of weird spocky looking dude, and then there's like a guy with the punk hair with the green skin. I just love this thing. It's got the old school Ultra logo. It. It, I just love it. I love it so completely. And I am so – I have no idea why he's here, like why he got a <laughs> listing. I, I don't think he deserved one. I don't think he was in anything currently. But I love that they got John K. Snyder to do it. John K. Snyder did just such a great job. He is just killing it in these, these entries. And on the back, we see him for – and we're seeing um, him pining for his girlfriend, who, of course, he can never be with because now he's no longer Ace Arn, former space pilot. He's ultimately It's, it's even a thought balloon. It's like yes. a little thought balloon with a pictogram of her face, which yeah, is he's, awesome. He's all sad about her. Oh, okay. So I just, I, I, don't know, I just, it's so colorful and so beautiful. I just love this thing. All right, all right, Rob, brace yourself. You ready? This is one of my single favorite entries of the entire loose leaf edition. Hey, there we of go. Who's we who. can get along. All right. I love this thing. I have always loved this piece. It's not just recent. I have loved this since the day it came out. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? Um, now, you say you've always loved Ultra the Multi-Alien. I never took notice of Ultra the Multi-Alien until this entry. Even with the classic Who's Who, it was still, it was a good, I can't remember who did it. It was a good entry, whatever it was in the classic Who's Who. I think they got uh, the original artist, Lee Elias, to do the original. Okay. I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty sweet. Uh, this one, though, is just, like you said, off the chart amazing. Now, you said why he's in here? I have no freaking idea, man. I did some research here. Okay. Um, he appeared in 1966. That is the <laughs> – here's his history. He's in 1966, right? Doesn't appear again until who's who, <laughs> which is, what, 20 years. Then he appears in History of the DC Universe, and that's it. Yeah. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. He had one more issue. Okay. He appeared in an issue of Animal Man. All right. But it was Animal Man number 25, which is like chock full of weird characters. So I haven't reread the issue in years. I'm sure he's probably just in a, uh, in a, in a sea of, of weird characters, probably. Ironically, issue number 25 is also where Siskoid takes his uh, avatar from, the little monkey typing. But, um, and then he doesn't get seen for 10 years. 
So this is a passion character, a passion project character is what this is. This is the only reason he could possibly be in here. And I'm, thank God they did. It's just gorgeous. We need to email Michael Yuri and ask him, like, why is Ultra the Multi-Alien in here? Now, I will say, where I discovered Ultra the Multi-Alien was not in the comic books. It oh, was, really? it, Well, it sort of was. It was, ver- it was through Nickelodeon's video comics TV show. And we've talked oh, about that crazy. show where you, you, and yeah. you talked about it on your blog where it was literally some old DC comics from the 60s and 70s read to you out loud via voice actors. And for whatever reason, maybe it was a rights thing, I don't know, but that series did not do like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. They did off-brand. They did Adam Strange. They did Swamp Thing. They did Sugar and Spike. And they did, for whatever reason, Ultra the Multi-Alien. And that was That's the crazy. Yeah, it is nuts. And that was the first time I'd ever seen the character because I because of course he appeared in '60s comics. I didn't have access to those back then. Now, as a side thing, I decide I spent a couple hours like over the course of last week trying to find information about this show, video comics. There's only <laughs> again, there, yes, you're, there you're was back a, on that again. <laughs> I, I I am determined to find information on this, and I I found there was a comment on the IMDb page. From the producer of the show, from the no, the director of the show talking about it, but you can't like use it to contact him in any way. And there's only two. Uh, unbelievably, this thing is not even on YouTube. This show, there's the intro, the opening credits again, which you put on your Firestorm fan blog because it shows Firestorm comic in a spinner rack. Sure and there's, does. There's two segments from the show on YouTube. There's one of Hawkman. Uh, un- unhelpfully titled Wingman by the guy that uploaded it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then one of Swamp Thing. Um, right, I knew the Swamp Thing one. Was Swamp Thing there, one. Yeah. That's the one everybody knows. But like this thing has just disappeared. But I remember it. I never missed an episode of Video Comics. I loved it, and it introduced me to all of these cool characters. And so, Ultra the Multi Alien, like to me, is like that's how I know it's through Video Comics. And I'm so happy that a he's here, and b they gave it to John K. Snyder, who just crushed it. You know what's so weird about it, though, is like that video comics thing, it was, you know, what the late 70s, early 80s, whatever it was. It was like 79, 80, prom- 81. Okay, why would they promote a 13 year old comic? Made no sense. You know, it's not like someone could go to another drugstore and get it. Nope. You know, so made, it wasn't reprinted. It made what no sense. It made no sense at all. I, I, someday I'm going to find out about that series. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's the friggin' internet. Everybody's on the internet. I'm going to find my way to somebody that worked on that well, show. I don't know how, but I'm, I'm going to do it. I've been flipping through the Silver Age sci-fi companion again while we've been talking. I still can't find them ultra multi-alien piece in here, but uh, it's worth it again just for Star Hawkins and his sex robot. Yes, exactly. Oh, such great. We go on and on about ultra multi-alien, but just I, I'm unbelievable that John K. Snyder did two in a row that are my favorite. Oh. That guy is just well, fantastic. Almost every entry he does in Who's Who is exceptional. Yeah, so really he's fantastic. Good, good stuff. Red, Bo- Red Border, by the way, writers uh, Robert Greenberger and first appearance, uh, you know, 1965. So apparently he had a few appearances before he faded away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next up, Vandal Savage, joined by Mike Parabek <laughs> and Jose Marzon, which is fan-damn-tastic. Everybody like Mike Parabek. Um, it's kind of funny. I think it's funny. Group affiliation in Justice Society of the World that we knew. The yep. Illuminati. Yep. Like, I didn't think that was like a thing in comics. I always thought it was like that was the, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens guy. Like, it was like <laughs> that kind of thing. I love the inset that Mike Parabek slightly turned the camera at an angle and we see him strangling Flash. I think that's just a great picture. I, I said, the Vandal Savage, I mean, everything you need to know about him is on this is on the front piece. It's him in front of a bunch of time periods, and then we see him throughout history. We see him in kind of um, Shakespeare's time, and we see him in 
in China. We see him in the Roman uh, the, the Roman times. We see him in the Napoleon. We see him on a like looks like a presumably like a pirate ship or something. Uh, it's just great. It's, it tells you everything you need to know about this character. And I don't know. I dig this guy. I loved him in um, Kingdom Come. I think Mark Wade did a really good job using him in Kingdom Come. And uh, he first appeared in Green Lantern number ten. The original series, 1943. Yeah. So we've been around yep. a long damn time. Um, l- l- a few things to say here. Uh, the whole thing with Illuminati came from the Time Masters miniseries. It was fairly recent at this point. Uh, in fact, Rip Hunter killed his dad. Right, he mentions he was the father as being deceased here. Yeah. Uh, he, he thought Vandal, Rip Hunter thought he was killing Vandal Savage. Turns out he was killing his father, which sort of then led Vandal Savage on a war with this. You know, so he kind of, Rip Hunter create, you know, created his own problem there. Um Amazing character. Now, I, there's been periods where I love him. There's periods where I'm kind of like, eh, about him. You know, like um, he was the, – the, the JSA series, the one from the 70s in All-Star Comics, he wasn't great in that. But then they do the stuff, you know, in the 80s with him in The Flash. And then they do the stuff um, – Oh God, Justice League uh, Unlimited or Justice League whatever, or maybe it was Superman. I don't know. They had an episode where Superman went to the future and him and Vandal Savage are like the last people alive. And uh, I mean, they've done so many cool things with Vandal Savage. It's just great character, uh, full of potential. Sometimes there's been missteps like the Ray. Um, the Ray got way too deep in the Vandal Savage sort of history for there for a while. Anyway, um, the thing I love about this, Mike, you said it, Mike Parabek's cover is our, our front art is amazing. Now, if the, the thing, first of all, Mike Parabek. Amazing talent, taken too soon. The guy was amazing. Yes, tragically um, died, very young man. And this is, and, and the thing I know Mike Parabek for most of all is that JSA ten issue series he drew, the ongoing ten issue ongoing series. It is some of my favorite JSA comics of all time. The writing's okay on it, but the art is unbelievable. I had a Mike Parabek uh, JSA mini poster on my wall for. 20 years probably it only came down when i moved because i ran out of space but um i love his style so him drawing this was very exciting for me because it's a jsa character so i did a little research on it uh we are five months away at this point from the jsa miniseries um written by len straszewski i believe it was and had a rotating series of artists and mike Perbeck actually drew two issues of that miniseries so i wonder five months out if he already knew he was going to get a jsa gig and why they picked him for this, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the JSA gig happened because of this. I don't know which, but thank God he did it because it is just unfreaking believable. And of course, the border is black because uh, he's a villain, written by Peter Sanderson. Um, and if you want more on Vandal Savage, I mean, there's a lot of places you could go. Uh, probably the, the 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 general public at large knows him best from Declot, you know, DC's Legends of Tomorrow. He was a villain in that series uh, for a whole season. So, I mean, anyway, great, great character uh, and amazing. And so glad that Parabek did the century. Oh, over the moon about it. Beautiful stuff. All right, next up, uh, Vril Dox, otherwise known as, uh, well, not otherwise known as Brain 5 the descendant. He's a Brain 5 is a descendant of him. Yep. Uh, drawn by Barry Kitson, written by Mark Wade. <laughs> I, again, I've read the listing, I, but other than that, I have no, in, no knowledge of this character at all other than, Again, this listing, and the fact that he first appeared in Invasion Number One, so Siskoid's yep. happy. Okay, so the gist of this character is uh, you've heard of the series Legion, the one with the dots, yes. right? Like Legion eighty nine, Legion ninety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He was the lead protagonist of the series. Not a nice guy, though. Complete asshole, actually. Forgive my French. Um, that's what he's famous for. He's absolutely a genius. He's horribly manipulative, and he's a bastard. That's why this character is known and why he's beloved. Uh, he's a horrible person because he manipulates you in such a way to get what he wants, and what he wants is a police force, basically. And um, he is sort of like the adopted son 
of, of, of the original Brainiac, which is why he's called Vrildox II, because you know Vrildox is uh, the original Brainiac. So he's Vrildox II. He's not the biological son of Vrildox, but he's sort of a adopted, cloned. What is it? it actually says it here somewhere. Um, oh, I don't remember. I don't know that it really matters that much. But uh, okay, now I do want to know. Okay, they 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 get, it allowed him to artificially impregnate a female. Okay, so it's sort of his kid, sort of not. So that's why they um, and someone pointed this out in the feedback. This is why Brainiac Five is the descendants of this version, this real docs, and not a descendant of the Brainiac robot because this one's sort of not exactly his son. Anyway, um, that that's that's the big thing you got to know is the character you hate, uh, but because he's, but he's on the right side. So the, the color is red for hero, but you could also have another color for bastard if you wanted. And um, he hadn't been around long, but boy, he made an impact fast. Really, really fast. If you read stuff from the 90s that it touches on Legion, you, you don't forget this character. I, I Personally, I like the character, but it's just really unpleasant. So because he's connected to Legion, you can get more information from Legion super bloggers or, again, check out First Strike Invasion podcast. And oh, by the way, at this point, the Legion comic was Legion 90. It changed names every year, which is kind of unique. It was Legion 89, Legion 90, etc. Legion 90, it was on issue number 21 at this point. Next up is The Weather Wizard, drawn by Alan Weiss, which is uh, kind of an unusual choice. Alan Weiss didn't do a lot of superhero comics, but uh, and like, I hadn't done anything, I think, in for mainstream comics in a little while. I think he did an epic series. Uh, a little bit before this, but again, it's kind of a strange choice, but okay. Of course, the classic Flash villain. Uh, he was uh, appeared in uh, the uh, the classic, classic Legends <laughs> of the Superheroes TV special with the one with uh, Ed McMahon and stuff like that, all the other characters. He what played, was he dressed as? Uh, what do you mean, what was he dressed well, as? Well, was it like, was the costume authentic? Yeah, yeah. He's played by comedian Jeff Altman. Playing, uh, oh playing gosh. Weather Wizard. Uh, here we see him uh, with his uh, with his wand, and he's causing all sorts of crazy. And of course, as as you'll get to on the JLI show, they did a version of this character on the unsold JLI pilot. Uh, oh, that's right. Into, um, like the Weatherman or whatever he was played called. Played by um, Miguel Ferrer. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But uh, here he is. He said he first appeared in Flash number one ten way back in June nineteen sixty. Uh, it talks about uh, little has been heard from the Weather Wither since the second Flash's death while fighting the Anti-Monitor. His most recent appearance was in Los Angeles where he apparently has tired of crime and was on a course for rehabilitation when he surprisingly turned up to help Blue Devil defeat the Trickster. The Weather Wizard has not been seen since. And we see him with the Flash in one panel and then with Blue Devil in another. Yep. I actually had to go back and look it up because I didn't remember that. I'm like, really? When was that? It was uh, Blue Devil number 30. It was just before the series got canceled. Because the last issue is issue 31. And usually when I do my Blue Devil reread, I start petering out somewhere in the 20s. I don't usually get all the way to the end, so that's why I didn't even remember it. Um, it. Not a lot to say. I looked up Alan Weiss while we're talking here, by the way. He had recently done some work for DC, actually. He actually uh, drew a, uh, the Johnny Thunder entry in Secret Origins number 50. So, uh, oh, okay. All right. So he did something relatively recent to this, but uh, it didn't uh, it didn't tie into this though. Um, what else? Uh, not a lot to say, really. I think you kind of touched it all. You know, the writer uh, on this entry, of course, is Robert Greenberger, and of course, his borders black for villain. And um, it, you know, he also showed up on the Flash TV show, so that's something too. Yeah, not just right. uh, not just the JLI one, but the, the 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 Flash TV show. I think, in fact, I think he was in the pilot. So. The, this art, I'm sorry, the drawing just really <laughs> – that's, that's why I sound so, like, dismissive. The drawing, he looks ridiculous. He just – he's like, hello. He's got a little elfin costume. Yeah, yeah. He's riding – he looks like he's just hanging on on the top of a skyscraper probably off the lightning rod. I don't know. It just – it's 
looks silly. I it, I don't have much for this one. Let's just keep going. Okay. Let's get to the marquee character. Well, and the, the the last and biggest entry of the book, of course, is Wonder Woman. It's kind of appropriate. She's in the same book as Troya, or she's the other way around. Troya's in the same book as Wonder Woman. Drawn by George Perez, of course. Historical first appearance, All-Star Comics number 8. Current appearance, first appearance is Wonder Woman number 1. We see her flashing her uh, her bracelets. We see her with her helmet on. We see her on Paradise Island. We get the shield and the cape and the whole the whole Megillah. It's a very nice piece. It's, it's not so much an action pose as she's uh, well, okay. It's an action pose in that she's doing something, but she's not like flailing at action. It's more like a uh, like a postery pose. Like she's just standing iconic. there. Yeah, a Kana kind of thing where she's crossing the, the bracelets. And I really I you know, it's so funny. Every time I really love this iteration of Wonder Woman. I thought George Perez did a great job of same thing that Jordan John Byrne did with Superman, of freshening the core concept up and making it sort of popular again. And then like I'll hear Frank talk about it, how come you know he's mm-hmm. not a big fan of this. And like I'll listen to him and he'll make sense to me. I'll go, Yeah, you know and then like an hour later I'm like, Hey, wait a minute you know, and then I go back to liking it again. So <laughs> My only problem with this is just I don't like the idea that Wonder Woman came along later, that she's hmm. way later in the DC universe. I know they kind of had to do it that way to refurbish her, but it just bothers me that she was like not a founding member of the Justice League and she's kind of a new character. I know that she was introduced into Legends. That's the only part of it I don't like, but again, I know they kind of had to do it to, to bring the character back to uh, you know prominence. And George Perez did. You know, he absolutely did. So, and on the inside, we see her with the uh, the Catal- I think you say the Catalus family. Um, I don't know how to say it. It's yeah. Yeah, we see her fighting Ares, and then we see her deflecting the bullet. So, you know, it's it's everything you what you would want in the George Perez Wonder Woman listing. This, honestly, this should be a poster. It, it's that good. It's that well rendered. It's a perfect sort of iconic sort of image for Wonder Woman. It looks poster material. Uh, I love it. Now, one of the things I find interesting is the design aesthetic, where there's this blue. Kind of, she's not wearing a cape, but it's a blue cape design, sort of blowing across the whole image, and it cuts sort of uh, diagonally from right to left. And, and the bottom half where the cape is is all beautiful. It's Paradise Island. Where the top half is, it's space, um, like or it's the sky and her in the helmet. In fact, you can look at the column on the far left side. There's a piece I don't quite get where the column just disappears, but it's. It looks like it's in both settings. Do you see the piece I'm talking about? Yeah, well, it's, it's again, it's abstract. It's that it's disappearing in and out of the flowing of the cape there. Yeah, but but then if you look above it, it is in the night sky. Right, so, right. Th- th- anyway, uh, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. Um, yeah, and of, of course, you know, let's see. Uh, you get the created by credit by uh, William uh, Moulton Marston and uh, the, the text. I thought it was surprising that Mark Wade wrote the text, considering George Press was writing the comic. I thought that was a little surprising, but whatever. Uh, Wonder Woman was on issue 48 at this point. You're about 10 months away from War of the Gods, which is kind of where George Press had enough. So they're they're getting they're they're starting to head towards that, but uh, of course we already mentioned you can listen to Frank's Diana Prince podcast, uh, which is not about the era of Wonder Woman, or you can listen to Wonder Woman uh, Warrior for Peace, which are all good options, or just go see the movie because it's awesome. That's right, yeah, yeah, it's terrific, and it's of course a great way to end the book because it's Wonder Woman, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so on the inside back cover we have a bunch of letters, and the only one I really wanted to highlight is from a guy named Jazz Walker, which is a great <laughs> name. And he mentions, he says, um, first of all, I must register my disappointment with the fold-out map, he puts that in quotes, of Atlantis. I'm sure you don't need me to explain the difference between a map and a picture. I hope the other maps 
which we have been promised will turn out better than this. <laughs> I love how friggin' snotty this com- comic fans are. And as we all know, uh, geek fans have gotten much better over time. We know that, oh, that it's not a problem the, anymore in the internet. Give them the, inter- like that. Yeah. Give them the internet and just decorum takes takes hold. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, Michael Yuri to his credit, just says, yeah, we goofed. It's not a map. It's a poster. Uh, it's not a map at all. But, you know, it's like, it's, I just love how offended he is that the, <laughs> that the word was in, incorrectly used. That's very funny to me. So. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of it throughout here. A lot of people bent out of joint. Like I mentioned earlier, the one about the, they didn't like the jokey entries. Uh, there's one in here where they're kind of suggesting that people should be getting multiple page entries, which is an interesting idea that being the loosely format, someone could have had two pages. Uh, like a Superman entry might have been worthy of it or something. But, you know, Yuri basically explains, well, if we do that, that means someone else doesn't get a page. Right. So, yeah, that's fair. Um, there's one person, like a gamer nerd, who, like, goes on and on how he wants he, – he's really offended by the, the way they describe strength and, and stuff. Like, he wants benchmarks. Right. He wants somebody to say – He's like, well, you don't have to say that he lifts 10,000 pounds, but you could say he easily lifts a car, or he could easily lift an ocean liner, or he could barely li-. And, like, dude, you're you're such a gamer nerd wanting your little perfect little box of everything. Get over it, pal. <laughs> and uh, let's see what else. Um, oh, they do reveal that Steve Beauvais uh, did uh, – who did, I think, the – Dolphin entry, maybe, in one of the previous entries. Isn't that right? I believe so. He also did the Aquaman updated entry in, yeah. like the, in that little index piece that they did. Yep. And he did a lot of the logos for this version. So if you, it, there are people that have beef with logos in our comments. I don't know that we really highlighted any coming up for the feedback. But just know Steve Beauvais looks like he was the guy who did a lot of them. So there you go. We, we now know it wasn't uh, – oh, gosh, who did the ones in the first? Todd Klein. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the amazing Todd Klein one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Nerdy little complainers. Love it. So yeah. poor Michael Gurry. I can't wait till we get a Chris Franklin's letter because we're just going to tear that nerd to shreds. Yeah. Oh, man, that guy. Jeez. So, uh, well, anyway, that's going to do it. That's Wonder – that's – not Wonder Woman. I'm sorry. That's Who's Who number four, man. We're done. It's in the it's, – it's, it's in the rearview mirror now. We are a quarter of the way through the initial Loose Leaf edition because it, it's 16 issues. So we're, we've got a quarter of them done. Uh, then we do get uh, the, the updates. So we'll have a few more after that. But, wow, we're, we're trucking along, man. All right. Okay. We're going to have to do some more of these uh, who's that to pad these things out so we can keep doing this into our retirement. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going <laughs> to take a break, and we're going to play some podcast promos. And when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback for the previous episode, Who's Who in the DC Universe, number three. Born and raised to make a kill She was not given her own will Her first hit left her feeling only disdain She ran to Gotham's no man's land Learned from Barbara Gordon's hand The studs, the legacy of Cassandra Cain Rising from the devastation of no man's land a new warrior joined the Bat family. Daughter of David Kane and Lady Shiva, trained from birth to be the ultimate killer, but choosing instead to save lives. She's been Batgirl, Black Bat, and Orphan. She is Cassandra Kane. Join Mike Staley as he goes through every appearance of one of DC's most underrated characters in Silent Night, the Cassandra Kane Podcast. On iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, 
and at silentnight.podomatic.com. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And we're back with a segment we like to call Who's Who's, How's and Why's, which is all the feedback we've gotten since we did the last episode. And, of course, we have to start off with iTunes reviews. We always want more and more iTunes reviews. We used to have a ton of them back when the uh, everything, all the shows were in one feed, but now the shows are broken up in individual feeds, so we had to kind of start over from scratch. But we have gotten some new ones that we really appreciate it. And, of course, as a reward for everyone who leaves an iTunes review, we will read your entire review. The first one is from Mike Dennis or Deans, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, one way or the other, from Canada. And he says, for nerds and non-nerds alike, a fantastic podcast where the two leads, Rob and Shag, share the joy of the Who's Who comic books published by DC. Whether you know your Wotan from Kite Man, from Composite Superman, or don't know if Wolverine <laughs> is Marvel or DC, you will enjoy the back and forth of the hosts sharing their enjoyment and memories of some of the famous and infamous characters, but not Sugar and Spike, sorry Rob, from the DC Universe. <laughs> Whether it's a one-star review to a five-star review, no stars are enough to contain the knowledge and enthusiasm that these hosts have for these four-color heroes. I can't recommend this podcast enough. Why are you still reading this and not listening to this podcast already? Wow, Mike, that's an amazing review. Thank you, sir. That was awesome. I absolutely love that. And he gets us. He clearly gets us. So, yeah, with Kite Man and Kabaza Superman and, and uh, Sugar and Spike. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the next one comes from, and I couldn't track down who this really is. So please feel free to write us in and tell us who you are, the person that goes by that old comic smell. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, they wrote, and the subject line was terrific, in parentheses, fair play. That's awesome. They wrote, a really fun, informative show that just recently dis- that I just recently discovered and will be listening to from the very beginning, hoping for more who's who presents showcase episodes really great stuff there you go rob so clearly somebody enjoyed the crime doctor episode <laughs> wow thanks for the compliment check uh, well, no yeah. no no. i meant i like the way you said it somebody <laughs> well i'm also a somebody who enjoyed it so there does that make you feel better <laughs> no not really but okay uh no th- <laughs> thank you so much for that review that's that's uh, terrific as it were uh, we got oh. a, we got another we got we got a, our final tunes review we got from the great chaffino he says, wonderful stuff. This is the zaniest idea of a podcast ever, yet it somehow works brilliantly. It provides a loving snapshot of the state of the DC universe from the mid-80s into the mid-90s, a period when DC produced some very creative series. Every character and creator get their due here, and it's a joy to listen to. Well, thank you, Chefino. We appreciate it. Awesome. 
So that's going to wrap up our iTunes reviews. Yes, definitely. Please, please go out to uh, iTunes and leave us an iTunes review. It just it helps more people find the show. Clearly, you can see from these entries, there's new people finding the show as it is now. And uh, it just it helps this Who's Who community grow. So we would love it to hear from you. So now we're going to cover your feedback from Who's Who in the DC Universe number three. It's going to mostly be our website comments, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Please go out there and leave your comments. That is where most of the activity and discussion takes place. But we'll also be pulling in some emails and Facebook and Twitter. And there were... 54 comments on our website. Oh, my gosh. Because there's so much content there, uh, we're just going to be sort of cherry-picking some of the highlights, things that we found interesting, or ways to mock you guys at home, pretty much whichever. Uh, And so we will be reading from those. Rob, why don't you kick us off? All right. The first one is uh, David Ace Gutierrez. We all know who he is. Uh, He says, guys, let's give you some sugar first by saying how much I enjoyed this episode. It always feels like an eternity between episodes. That Katana Banana bit uh, sounds as freshly annoying the eighth time as it did the first. Looking forward to the next episode when you cover a real hero of the DCU, not some lame ass. To clarify, that lame ass being Hal Jordan. (laughs) And by real hero, he must mean Ultra the Multi-Alien. Absolutely. And I'm glad he mentioned uh, Katana Banana because, of course, David is the owner and operator of the Katana Banana franchise. So, uh, and that would be the ninth and tenth time he's got to hear that joke. So, then we hear from our buddy Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast and DC OCD. I was on there recently talking about Eclipso, the Darkness Within, and we talked about uh, uh, Legion characters a little bit. Uh, well, actually, I don't know if we actually talked about them, but I read some comics from the Eclipso crossover that involved Legion characters, including Vril Dox the Second. Just want to point that out. Anyway, Paul says, I just want to comment on Rebus appearing in the Doom Patrol TV show, because we did sort of speculate whether Rebus would appear. And he says, the character is an evolution of Larry Trainer as Negative Man, so I wouldn't be too surprised if it was a change they introduced once they have a few seasons under their belt. Uh, quite possibly, Paul, although that might require a change in lead actor, and I, you know, TV shows get a little funny about that, so we'll have to see. Then we heard from our buddy Philemon, the uh, previously mentioned president of the Jericho fan club that meets over on Maple Street or whatever street I made up just a few minutes ago. Uh, he gave us lots of comments, but a couple things he says. Now, now, if, here's a little thing you got to know about Philemon. We love him. We do. We absolutely do. It's a little terrifying that he's responsible for teaching America's youth, but whatever. Uh, he usually says the opposite of what makes sense in logic. So let's see what he's got for us this time. He says, I'm surprised that neither of you brought this up, but the reason Bruce Wayne is without his cape and cowl in that wonderful outfit entry is because the butler is carrying the clothing item away on the tray. Um, Luckily, the entry wasn't drawn by Todd McFarlane, or Alfred might have thrown out his back. (laughs) And you're right. We completely forgot to mention, yes, the cowl is on the tray as he carries it away. Uh, Let's see. Philemon then says, Shag, uh, I admittedly have never been to Britain, but I'm 100% confident you are the first person in all of history to use the phrase chalk and cheese. Sorry, brother. It's just not a thing. Then there is a whole series of comments that follow this up, supporting me by talking about the fact that the expression chalk and cheese does exist, and it means what I intended. I stated it a little bit off because I was talking about how uh, fire, I was talking about how ice and uh, Guy Gardner, as a couple, they truly are chalk and cheese. They just don't go together at all. Now, I did follow it by saying they kind of worked, so maybe I was a little off base on it, but either way. I got support from Paul Hicks, uh, Michael Ridge. Basically, he said the commonest form of chalk and cheese idiom is X and Y are alike as chalk and cheese, meaning that they're not alike at all. It's kind of opposite as in uh, the opposite of as two peas in a pod. My, uh, Martin Gray supported me uh, um, from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. You know, Martin says Shag is entirely correct. I make that twice this year. So uh, Siskoid also backed me up. So thank you to all those folks who backed me up on that. I appreciate it. And Rob, you were telling me I was making that up. Isn't that right? I was completely wrong. I, I would admit it. I've never heard of that phrase, and it sounded grotesque and terrible, but it's a real thing. 
Yeah, quite a Use that snapshot, and I'm just going to play it every morning just to help me get up in the morning. Oh. Uh, Philemon continues. He says, first of all, Shag, I warned you about mentioning the Titans hunt. It didn't happen, period, end of story. See, that's why we had internet trouble earlier. He was actually trying to stop me from mentioning it. Uh, second of all, I completely disagree with you about Madame Xanadu, the Vertigo series. Much like the Phantom Stranger, Madame Xanadu is a character who works best when her origins are shrouded in mystery. At the risk of having Tom King sue me for a gimmick infringement, Madame Xanadu to do is, and that's all you need to know. You know, Philemon, you're not crazy here. Uh, well, you were about the Titans, huh? But you're not crazy about Madame Xanadu. I will give you some credit there that she does work better, Shrouded Mystery. However, with that said, that series, the Madame Xanadu Vertigo series, was still really, really, really good. I mean, it was a very entertaining, incredibly well-illustrated series. So, it's sort of one of those, it's like every once in a while a comic will come along. That, like The formula for Smallville, the TV series, the formula was a disaster. Clark Kent as a kid, but he doesn't put on the Superman costume, and Lex Luthor lives in his hometown. That sounds idiotic. And yet for the first few seasons it was very entertaining. And then again later in the later seasons. So it's just something that shouldn't have worked, but it did. So Then he goes on to say, I feel like the new Guardians are characters I should really like, but I never read anything with these characters in it. Because I've also decided to track down the issues of Cadaver appears in and make him my new favorite villain. There we go. There's the Philemon we know, Rob. Loving the new Guardians and supporting Cadaver. That's the Philemon we expected to hear from. <laughs> uh, we got a comment from Tom Paneris, who does the Pop Culture Alpha David. Oh, did I spell it wrong? I did spell it. <laughs> no, no, no. You got it right. I'm just saying oh, okay. it wrong. I'm just being a snot. And, okay. And the in-country podcast, he says, another great episode as always. As I mentioned before, the loose-leaf edition of this series is my who's who, and I love the enthusiasm that Chag brings to each entry, while Rob guts it out like one of my students who has been assigned these entries for homework and is participating in a discussion because his grade depends on it. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize I was that bad, but enough people have commented on it that maybe I am. I don't know. I will admit, these I don't have a lot of enthusiasm for these unless it's something drawn by John K. Snyder uh, <laughs> or, or Art Adams. But I feel like I'm doing my best to get through this series because, yeah, this, this is not my jam. I, I was starting to phase out of the DC universe at this point, but, but nevertheless, I'm enjoying myself. Well, and Tom, by the way, Tom messaged us just tonight, and I'll have to, I'll mention on the next episode. But he actually has a bunch of these entries from the the Loose Leaf Who's Who signed by the artists. He does, so, yes, yeah. So I'll, I'll read the message we got tonight next time. But uh, he says here, Shag mentioned Roy Harper's daughter Leanne being one of the best things about this character, and I completely agree. Well, the Titans through the 1990s can be hit, miss, and dear God, what is that thing? Uh, Roy and Leanne were always a bright spot, and trying to raise her on his own, on his own uh, was used very well when it came to his relationship with the other Titans, especially Rose Wilson and Donna Troy. So the single dad thing absolutely worked. And I like how he closes this here. I don't think the character, meaning Leon, has appeared since the 1990s or the early 2000s. At least that's what I think. Yes, that's because we all absolutely refuse uh, to acknowledge all the horrible things that James Robinson uh, poured down on that character that was completely undeserving. And we all pretend they never happened. So uh, let's see. Because finally, I think the idea of Katana Batana... <laughs> I can't ever say it without laughing. Uh, finally, I think the idea of Katana banana stand needs to be explored. In my mind, it works in two ways. As the main set piece of a live-action 1970s sitcom with an occasional appearance by John Belushi, who runs the Samurai Deli that is in the same Long Island strip mall, or as the front for an early 1990s syndicated anime series that has the same style and classic as a Brandon Lee movie like Showdown in Little Tokyo and Rapid Fire. So, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's awesome, Tom. Let's make this happen. Uh, although, I think we'd have to give David A. Scudier a piece of it, wouldn't we? Anyway. 
Then we heard from Aaron Head Moss from the Headcast Network, who does shows like Task Force X, Starman, and the Manhunter Adventure Hour, and many more. This is just a quick note regarding Starman Will Payton. I don't know if they have plans for bringing this great character back, but in DC's Metal, which was a series it's called Metal, uh, issue number one, I think they showed Will Payton in the black costume. They did, in fact. It was like someone had a picture of him hanging up somewhere. I saw that, and that was awesome. And it showed at least somebody cares about Will Payton. That made me happy. And he says, I agree with both of you liking the name Changeling. Going back to Beast Boy seems like a step back to me. Absolutely, Aaron. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Common Bucks Commentary, and Legion of Super Bloggers, and was our first guest on Who's That? He says, just starting to listen. You better treat my boy Kestrel well. Womp womp, as they say. (laughs) And the funny thing is, you know, I posted something on Twitter tonight about us recording Who's Who, and he wrote back, they better say good things about barter. Oops. Oh, boy. <laughs> Why can't he say something about Ultra the Multi-Alien? Right. Apparently, Ange is, uh, st- likes the characters. We- oh, you know what? It's all Hawk and Dove characters. That's what it yeah, is. Well, uh, right. Yeah, it's all Hawk and Dove, yeah. Yeah, well, Ange, you're barking up the wrong tree there, buddy. <laughs> anyway, Ange goes on to say, I'm glad that the f- five year later Legion is getting such a push here. As Shag said, Legion of Superheroes number 12 was out this month, and it was a huge issue in that run. Uh, yes, Dr. Ange. Dr. Ange wrote these amazing reviews of the 5YL later for the Legion of Superbloggers. You should check it out. Then he says, The Rebus page is great, and I definitely like the white stripe which was the cover motif on the book at the time. Love the Morrison run as a whole, so you can't see, uh, so can't wait to see the rest of these pages. Yes, I'm very excited about it as well. And I had mentioned during the, the Rebus issues, I, I thought that white motif, that bar motif, was in fact from the comics, and there's a little more on that later we'll get to. And he goes, yeah, and this is very specific to Supergirl. He says, yes, Panic in the Sky is great, but it was one more bullet in the gut for Supergirl fans. Think of the history of Supergirl at that time. Matrix from a pocket universe, protoplasmic being, in the care of the Kents as May, featureless, childish, uh, traumatized, shapeshifts and takeovers, takes over the role of Clark Kent during uh, the Superman exile, becomes to believe she's Clark, fights Clark and banishes herself to space, then in Panic in the Sky is brainwashed to becoming Brainiac's lackey. But Panic in the Sky was the first time I felt this Brainiac was approaching the old Brainiac threat levels as it did have a crossover feel to it. So here you can see Ange is suffering from the pain of Supergirl being mistreated in the 80s post-crisis. Well, Nicholas uh, Allheim, I guess is how you say that, can't comment at also. He goes, but it's also the first place Matrix Supergirl really started to come back into being Supergirl. She had a rocky path until Peter David's run, but I bought the entire saga because Supergirl was there and she did a lot of good stuff by the run's end. Now that's fair. It, she, uh, Panic in the Sky really did start her on the path of being the Supergirl we fell in love with. So, yeah, there's, there's something to be said there. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network, also does the Justice League uh, Unlimited Podcast, JLU Cast, Superman Movie Minute, and a number of other ones. He wrote about Speedy. He says, Tom Grummet was like the George Perez in many ways. Just as Perez could draw the adult Dick Grayson in the classic Robin costume and make it look cool, Grummet does the same for Speedy here. And now I'll never be able to see this entry without imagining Batman and Robin leaping from the roof just seconds before. Because you had mentioned Robin looked like that same set. Yep. <laughs> You're welcome, Chris. Uh, he says, Gorilla Grodd. Art Adams is to gorillas, but Bernie Wrightson was to decaying corpses. A master. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love that analogy. A master. DC Direct based their later Gorilla Grodd figure directly on this image. He even came with the same accessories. I had no idea. That's great. 
That's awesome. Yeah, he included a picture there too. Yes, that's um, super. About Cadaver, because you know we 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 bagged on Cadaver pretty hard. He goes, it's kind of odd that he gets an entry, but the uh, Grant Brayfogle team was hot stuff on the Batman titles at this time. So anything they created was up for grabs. Cadaver was obsessed with death, so he would often stage these elaborate death scenes to shock and horrify his stooge uh, that they uh, that we see here. All right, if you say so, Chris, I'll trust you. Uh, then he goes on about Sinbad, okay, drawn by Kurt Swan. Remember this. He goes, okay, he goes, okay, and Sinbad by Kurt Swan. At this point, I give up. Rob and I agree on a lot of things, but Kurt Swan just isn't one of them. It's an, I think it's a nice piece, not a great entry for, uh, not a great entry for an unfortunately forgettable character. I think creating a young Middle Eastern hero was a nice move by DC, but he doesn't even rate a footnote in Superman history. <laughs> All right. And there'll be a lot more about Sinbad in here. I kind of highlighted a few pieces here and there. Uh, Anthony Durso, who goes by the Toy Room and creates these awesome custom Mego boxes. And I had to rearrange my bookshelves today. And uh, I got to, I, I was messing around with my, my custom Mego box. I love it. So thank you, Anthony. Anyway, he says, because uh, you talked about Sarcastic Alfred last time. We talked about when did that start. And he, he agrees with you. He goes, Sarcastic Alfred did indeed start with The Dark Knight Returns. Frank, Maller, Frank Miller patterned him after Sir John Gielgud's character from Arthur. Look sure. at that. Makes sense. That's pretty cool. And he says, Black Racer. <laughs> I'd like to formally announce a new edition of the Fire and Water Family of Podcasts. It's called Back to the Bed, an extensive look at the Black Racer. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. I love the idea. Like, there's something challenging about devoting an entire podcast to somebody that obscure. Like, that's just, it feels, <laughs> like, feels like something challenge accepted. Uh, he says, uh, Count Vertigo. DC should have rebooted him as the host of an anthology title under the Vertigo imprint. Seems like a natural. Oh, wow. I wonder if they ever used him for Vertigo. It seems like they should have, you know? I don't think so. I think he, think he stayed on the other side of the uh, of that line. Yeah. Uh, this is about Gorilla Grodd. He goes, in my opinion, DC Comics is leaving money on the table by not having Art Adams draw a super ape team-up comic with Gorilla Grodd, Titano, Kongorilla, Gorilla Boss, Monsignor Mala, and Beppo. I, <laughs> I think you're onto something, man. That would be amazing. Uh, then we heard from Diablo Frank. Of course we heard from Diablo Frank. He wrote us a small, tr- uh, you know, treatise. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words here. He wrote a small, uh, Mein Kampf. Here we go. Anyway. Uh, oh, oh man. <laughs> it's from the world's, of course he's from the world's fine podcast network. He does a number of shows over there, including Diana Prince, Wonder Woman podcast, which I've talked a lot about Marvel superheroes podcast and like 80,000 others. Uh, he wrote about Carrie Gamble. We were, we were praising Carrie Gamble last episode. And he goes, Carrie Gamble is vastly underrated, surely due to his low productivity, but his Brainiac piece is nice. I don't think, I don't, I never thought of Carrie Gamble as someone who had low productivity. I thought he had runs on a lot of Marvel books, so I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I'll have to look that up. He did uh, a lot of your further adventures of Indiana Jones? Yeah, he did Power Man and Iron Fist and stuff, so, all right, I, anyway, I'm going to look into that. Anyway, he continues, he says, for whatever reason, and I think Rob's lethargy and the comparatively light comments bear this out, but there was an overall sense of blah to this edition. I never quite checked into this episode. I'm also going to have to call Shag out on calling me out about Will Payton. Oh, Lord. Oh, here God. We go. Now we're inception here. I've read a few of his solo comics and assorted appearances, and it's the height of fanboy gatekeeping BS to vacate my conviction because I didn't choose to read more lousy comics about a crappy hero to offer better informed condemnation of him. Shag's never read any Jerry Conway or Roy Thomas Wonder Woman stories despite being a fan of the men, but that never stopped him from trashing related Bronze Age entries in the old Who's Who. Nuh-uh, poopy head. It's not an effective counter-argument for reevaluating that loser. Well, okay, that's fair, nuh-uh, poopy head. But I will say, I actually have read several Bronze Age Wonder Woman comics, and they bored me to tears. And by several, I mean... 
maybe half a dozen to a dozen gold, uh, Bronze Age Wonder Woman comics, and they just didn't do anything for me. So I feel like I have an informed opinion. You may feel like you have an informed opinion about Starman, but it felt, and, and to some of the comments that followed up, it felt like a little more of a soapbox beating, buddy. But you know what? We're splitting hairs here. I love you, bro. You know, you're my dog, so let's let's not let's not fight. Okay, we'll fight about something else instead. How's that? We'll fight about Kestrel, because uh, Kestrel. Oh, this is him just talking. Kestrel always struck me as the answer to the question: What if you wanted to do Venom, but based on one of Steve Ditko's worst creations instead of one of his best ones? <laughs> okay, okay, we're not going to fight about Kestrel. We're totally on the same page. <laughs> He says, I still find Rob Liefeld's art to be fun, and I think several of the entries so far in this edition would have been a lot more interesting if he'd drawn them. Cough, cough, dead shot, cough, cough. Okay, now we're back to fighting, Frank. We don't agree there. I do love you trashing Kestrel. That was hilarious. Because uh, Wonder Woman has an okay rogues Oh, because we were talking about Silver Swan. Because Wonder Woman has an okay rogues gallery. It's not great, but there aren't many all-timers that could be could have stood up next to the uh, next to the big league villains. But it's solid with a lot of unrealized power. Roy Thomas and Gene Colan created a contender in Silver Swan who started in the best arc of their brief run. George Perez completely missed the point of that character and recreated her as a total loser who utterly failed as both a villainess and a heroine by never committing to either role. And now I'm jumping ahead a little bit further. He goes, uh, she didn't become Diana's sidekick, and she was never much of a bad girl. So she's just somebody to draw in a retrospective collage whenever an anniversary rolled around. Oof, man, harsh words. But clearly, you know, he knows Silver Swan from the Bronze Age and had a lot more affection for that version. And then, let's see. Uh, he goes, and then we're on to Sigh, not Medusa. That's what he's calling Spider-Girl, is not Medusa. And he goes, I swear, the Legion are the new gods of this loose-leaf edition. And uh, I, I'm willing, because you know, we, we, you know, we complain a little about New Gods and Omega Men being too much in the previous editions. Uh, I, yeah, I love the Legion entries, but you know, I can see where you might be right if for someone like Rob that doesn't care about the Legion, continually seeing character after character drawn in this dystopian mess you know, with their real names, I can see why that might bother somebody. Hmm, fair enough. Okay, we heard from our buddy Martin Gray, again from Too Dangerous for Girl blog. He says, fun show, but we need a rule that Rob has to find something to say on every entry. Work, damn you, work. <laughs> We've already addressed this. Rob's energy was very high this episode, and he had something to say about every character. So there we go. Well Martin's done, Rob. A, Martin's a real taskmaster. He says, <laughs> uh, that Count Vertigo pick is amazing. Fantastic depth. We need a story in which Count Vertigo, Sonar, and Geoforce get involved in a little European war. Have you ever seen the Count's current look? Oh, dear. Yes, I have. It's uh, it's pretty grim. <laughs> what? Really? What? It, like? Go just go Google it and just you'll just yeah. It's very from disappointing. from like TV or from comics. The comics. Okay, I will. Ugh, now yeah. I'm scared. Okay. Yeah. Um, I see. Oh, this, he's the one that pointed out to me about Brainiac Five. He says Brainiac Five isn't a descendant of the original Brainiac Shag because the original was an android who adopted a clue and boy to seem human-like. So there you go. That's why he's a descendant of Real Docs the Second, Rob's favorite new character. Once he reads a comic with him. Uh, and, and Martin says, I remember Sinbad. He was meant to come because we talked about how Sinbad appeared and was never seen again. Well, uh, we were wrong. Uh, it really was Rob that was wrong. I'm sure I was thinking this. Anyway, uh, he says Sinbad was meant to come back when Chris Roberson took over for uh, JMS with uh, – he was going to come back with a less fun name. But editorial or someone high up nixed it. And he says Chris Sims over at Comic Alliance has some theories, and he gave us some links on that. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And he goes, oh, Shag, the new Adventures of Superboy was fantastic from Bob Rosakis, Paul Kupperberg, and uh, Kurt Schaffenberger. Imaginative main story, good subplots, and an original girlfriend for Clark. You know, Martin, we went through this before when I bagged on new Adventures of Superboy. I'm glad that you love it, and I think that's fantastic. I seriously do. You're, 
You're not going to convince me. I read several issues of it. I had some as a kid, and even as a kid, I couldn't stand them. So we're not going to get there, but I love that you have enthusiasm for him, buddy. I truly, truly do. Thank you, Martin. Then we heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti from the Being Carter Hall blog, the Earth's Destruction Directive podcast over the Two True Freaks Network, and he's a cop on the edge because I just love saying that. Uh, Luke says, I had never seen... Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting opinion, folks. I had never seen the Kestrel image ever before. But I have to say, as someone who never read New Mutants, never read X-Force, never read Youngblood, or any other Rob Liefeld self-published book, uh, at first bought... His, his first Liefeld comic was the New 52 Hawk and Dove number one, Oof, man, poor Luke. Anyway, he says, I dig this pinup quite a bit. It captures the character well, and Liefeld's art has always worked better as pinups rather than sequential, especially back in the day. Wow. I mean, that is a very contrary opinion to Rob and I's and most people's, but it's just equally as valid. So I appreciate you sharing that, Luke. I'm glad that the art appeals to somebody. Somebody. Uh, Brian Lind. <laughs> Brian Linton says, I found your discussion of Black Racer as an analog of the Silver Surfer to be very interesting. Back when I first was reading Marvel Comics, I went through a phase where I followed a lot of the cosmic characters like Silver Surfer, Adam Warlock, Quasar, and Gene Hendricks happy about that. Specifically, my comic reading phases, uh, 1.2B to 1.2F, for anyone who's curious. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I've often thought about checking out the new gods, but uh, as they seem to fill a similar niche in the DC Universe, but I've never gotten around to doing so. Does anyone have any suggestions regarding a good place to start with these characters? Thank you for another entertaining episode, gentlemen. And then Luke Giaconetti, Luke Giaconetti came in to say this may be the obvious answer, but I think for the new God's Fourth World, your best bet is to go back to the Kirby originals. DC recently published a massive omnibus for the entire Shaga, Saga. Shaga. You can find it on <laughs> in-stock trades for each of it. And that's, of course, that's the very thing that Shag uh, talked about at the in-stock trades ad in the beginning of the show. And I have to thank Luke for that, because when he wrote this comment, that's what pinged in my head to go, oh, you know what? There's a bunch of New Gods characters in this issue. Let's do that. And he's absolutely right, guys. I mean, for me, I, I didn't have the omnibus. I had these little collected black and white versions that had the early New Gods issues and the early Mr. Miracle issues. Even if you just find some early New Gods in Mr. Miracle, those are enough that made me finally get the New Gods. So, yeah, the original Kirby stuff is the way to go. I'm sure. Uh, Joe X wrote in to say, uh, Chunk ended up dating Wally Supermodel ex-girlfriend, so yay for fat guys. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Joe also says, uh, so I, I talked about the five-year-later Spider-Girl who was in the last issue, right? And I kept saying, I thought it was really weird she was in Who's Who because she wouldn't actually appear in the comic for a long time. Now, she'd been around, of course, in the, the earlier era of Legion, but not the 5YL version. So I thought, I was like, that's weird. This is a costume we've never seen. It's sort of like a preview for what's to come. And he backs me up here by saying that Spider-Girl showed up in Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, number 27, some more than a year in the future. So very, very weird. I guess the beer bombs had plans for her and somehow decided to sneak her in. I don't know. We got a comment from Michael Lane from the Comics in the Golden Age and Kirby Cast podcast. He says, Rob is less enthusiastic of the particular heroes, but his views on the art are still interesting, and I do find myself often in agreement. Thank you for inspiring me to go back and search out a complete set. Oops, I think my comment in reference to Rob was poorly phrased here. I was intending to emphasize how much I enjoy hearing his perspective and opinion on the art in these entries. No problem, Michael. I, I, I took it as a, as a nice thing for you to say. And I want to throw a compliment back to Michael. Um, his recent episode he did of KirbyCast, he did one on Spirit World, which was one of those weird-ass black-and-white magazines that Jack Kirby did for DC that like nobody bought because they were just like buried was really interesting. That that's a super obscure corner of uh, Kirby Nelly. And I was so glad to hear a podcast about it. So check that episode out. It was really fun. 
I'm glad to clarify in, in, in the comment here, because I thought he meant it inspired him to go back and collect a complete set of Rob, uh, which was just a weird thing to collect. I, I wouldn't want that in my collection. You'll anyway. never afford it, Michael. <laughs> they were from our buddy Jeff R., who I'm waiting. I only got, what, uh, another 12 issues before he can give us our egregious omissions of who's who. Uh, loose leaf. Can't wait. Anyway, Jeff says, so three issues in, and we still haven't seen anything from Legion, uh, the acronym Legion. So there we go. Well, Jeff, here you go. You got Vrildox the second. So if you're going to cover Legion 90 or whatever, this is the one to do it in. That's the character to do it with. So hope you're happy, Jeff. And uh, with Rob's passion and knowledge of the character. So anyway, um, <laughs> then we heard by Sean Walsh. Uh, who goes by Sergey Bamba, and then he writes in, once again, I come to share in the Kurt Swan love. Erm, um, and reveal that Sinbad actually did appear one more time after his three-part story in the Super Titles, and that would be in Legacy of Superman, which was an anthology one-shot that came out in the wake of Death of the Superman. Because uh, when you think of the Legacy of Superman, you think of Sinbad, of course. <laughs> but again, drawn by Kurt Swan, so I don't mind that this one is uh, that this linked one is the last living Superman great in the Death of Superman event, at least in a small part. You know, thank you for that, Sean. I had forgotten about that. The Legacy of Superman tr- was uh, was a great little one shot. It was a nice big thick comic. I remember it. And I'd forgotten the Sinbad was in it. So thank you so much, Sean. Then we heard from our buddy Sphinx Magoo. I love his name. He goes, oh, back to the Flash. No, gosh. Okay, because we are arguing about whether Flash is flying. He goes, on the cover number two, Flash looks like he's flying or taking a very long leap. This was my first thought when I saw it many moons ago, but it's not too strange a power stunt for a speedster. Over at Marvel, Quicksilver could, quote-unquote, could fly for short distances by flapping his arms or vibrating his legs. If Quicksilver could do that power stunt, it'd be pretty easy for Wally to do it because the Flash family were more powerful and skilled speedsters than the Marvel speedsters. Well, there you go. That's our no prize right there, folks. Yeah. Cover of Who's Who number two. It is a power stunt. He is not flying. Rob, I don't want to hear it again. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, Jeff Tischer writes in to say, Excited to see you guys at Baltimore Comic Con. I go with my father every year. That's very sweet. I think that's a neat idea, taking your dad to go to the Comic Con. That's great, Jeff. That's awesome, Jeff. Now, if you're there this year, look for the two bald guys. Uh, look for the two, the two bald middle-aged nerds uh, at the comic convention. That'll be us. Uh, and uh, Can you be sure about that? Right. I know exactly. That's the, that's the joke. But I, I do want to clarify one thing because I don't know that everyone really got my sarcasm in the last episode because I've actually gotten several congratulations for being a featured guest at the Baltimore Comic-Con. I was kidding, guys. Rob and I are going just to, to have fun. And uh, we are not featured guests in any way, shape, or form. I just thought it would be funny to say it that way and then make a point of saying we're paying our own way. We're having a signing behind the convention center when the security guards are I mean, it was a joke. So I want to make sure there's no confusion there. Nobody's looking for us on their website. Anyway, uh, Jeff goes on to say, Chunk, he didn't just end up dating Wally's supermodel ex-girlfriend. He ended up marrying her. And he goes, and I'm honestly surprised he hasn't shown up on the TV yet. You know, he is one of the few Flash characters that hasn't shown up. But I think there'd be a little bit of a... Yeah, a little uh, PC awkwardness now to, to have a character who's obesely overweight and make that his power. You know, they, they might have a trouble with that. So anyway, uh, about the new Guardians, he says Jet and Gloss have been name-checked in Doomsday Clock. That's a big thing out right now, guys. Um, they've been name-checked as part of the international response to the USA's metahuman explosion. I will say this, as bad as Millennium was, it could be worse. These guys could have spun out of Genesis. <laughs> I got a good laugh out of that one. Thank you so much. Uh, he goes on about Rebus. 
Because the left-hand stripe that Shag was talking about wasn't uh, Dave McKean. It was a vertigo trade dress. See, this is where we get the explanation. Dave McKean didn't like it because it messed up his cover aesthetic, particularly that it was introducing uh, right in the middle of a brief live storyline. He tried unsuccessfully to have them wait until the end of that story arc to implement it. There we go. See, I knew that 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 border thing, that white stripe thing, vertical, had something to do with vertigo. So thank you very much for clarifying for that. And he goes, Sinbad. Uh, this is more about the Sinbad character. He goes, he almost made a comeback during the Grounded storyline. We talked about that. After JMS dropped the ball, Chris Robertson stepped in, uh, picked it up, and turned it into something. In issue 712 was supposed to be a story about Superman meeting an aged, uh, aged up Sinbad, now a superhero in L.A., calling himself Sharif. But it was pulled at the last minute, and a story of crypto by Kurt Buzek was placed there instead. And there are differing versions of why this happened. You guys can research this. Uh, some of the reasons I, I'm seeing out there are pretty upsetting. So feel free to read that, explore, go down that rabbit hole at your own risk. Um, then about Spider-Girl, he goes, I was bummed when she was turned back into an out-and-out -out villain by Jeff Johns. I liked her as Legion's Catwoman. Could not agree more. I was very unhappy that she became a bad guy again. Because, yeah, she was she was Catwoman. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, totally agree. They were heard from my good buddy Tim Price. Love Tim Price. He and I go way back in the JLI podcast. He writes in to say, uh, J.K., uh, Jack... Uh, John K. Schneider III's Count Vertigo is indeed awesome. Uh, J.K.S. was my favorite artist on the Suicide Squad. Dude, he drew Suicide Squad? I didn't yeah, know that. I didn't know that either. Uh, I, and, and if I did, I've forgotten in the month that since I said it. I don't know. Either way, I totally need to go read those issues again because that guy's amazing. Um, you know, I, I was in a comic shop recently, and he just did the cover of a comic, and I bought it just because I love the cover. So anyway, uh, and he goes, oh, about O-Ice. This is a beautiful image of our Torah and captures our personality to a T. How great that Hughes did with both Ice and Fire's entries. Absolutely true. He says, seeing the length and number of comments to the show, I never want to hear Shag whine about my JLI podcast feedback ever, ever, ever again. <laughs> See, Tim writes these big, long dissertations on every JLI episode, which I totally appreciate and love, and they're great, insightful comments, and they're so long, I read them to my daughter at, at, nighttime, at bedtime to help her go to sleep. So. <laughs> See, I slipped it in here, too. You like that? You like it, Tim? Anyway, I uh, heard from our buddy Noah Tarnow. Noah says, I, for one, loved Cadaver and loved this drawing, and I wish he'd stuck around in the Bat Rogues Gallery. One of the many excellent things from the Grant Wagner Brayfogle run was how they weren't afraid to uh, levy their scary villains with a classic sense of humor. Then The Ventriloquist is best-known example, but Cadaver is another. Imagine a dirtbag crook as a cross between Vincent Price and Alice Cooper. I've always loved the two-part human flea story in the early run of Batman Shadow of the Bat, in which Cadaver was the main villain. That may be his final appearance, which is a shame. See, that guy, this is why I love you people so much. Because we might bag on a character, but you guys show us why that character's great, and why you love them. And that makes me so happy. That was awesome, Noah. Thank you very much for standing up for your, your character. Then we heard from Siskoid from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of course, does the First Strike Invasion Podcast, the FW Team Up, and a number of other shows. He goes, uh, quick shout out to Zoom for doing an Astrolad entry. I was a new Adventures of Superboy reader too, but from uh, a little bit later on, so my choice would have been Dynamind. Love this look still. So there you go. Little love for you, Zoom. Love, love, love what you did for us last month. Max Trevor wrote in to say, sadly, I have to add my voice to the critical chorus concerning that cover image. I like Pat Broderick's work a lot, but the longer I look at that howl, the more wrong-looking it gets. You know, there is a lot of feedback this episode. We didn't have it at all because I think Max's comment kind of sums it up there. But there's a lot of feedback about how that uh, Hal Jordan image is all messed up anatomy-wise. So you were right saying it was off. Apparently, I'm just not seeing it because I'm Pat Broderick blind, uh, sort of like being face blind. You just don't see certain things. Uh, so I, I just don't see it because he's Pat Broderick. So there you go. 
Uh, and he says, I was a huge Suicide Squad fan, uh, so for me, Luke McDonald is the Deadshot artist, and the character never looked quite right drawn by anyone else. Look at that. Another, another vote of confidence for something that we bagged on last time, so that's awesome. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Max. Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailitude Podcast Network from Crisis to Crisis and a bunch of other great shows said, love the Brainiac entry. I think I've agreed with Rob before, but he and I are on the same page as far as Carrie Gamble is concerned. He was also the perfect artist to follow Byrne on Superman, and I have a soft spot for this version of Brainiac. Sadly, Rob cannot use me as reference point for his look this time out, as I have not lost that much weight, still have hair, and am not green-skinned. Sad face. <laughs> Too funny. You know, I forgot, you know, Gamble, we totally praised him when he did Mon Pa Kent. Because he did. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Amazing Mon Kent. Uh, heard again from Nicholas Alheim. Uh, he says, uh, or Alhelm? I don't I'm sorry, Nicholas. I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Anyway, he goes, I actually really like a lot of Kelly Jones' work on Dead Man. So there you go. There's a fan of this version of Dead Man. There we go. He goes, but this particular piece falls flat for me. He just looks a little bit off here. So, you know, again, another version of Dead Man we weren't terribly fond of, but someone else's was someone else's favorite. I love you guys so much. He goes, and now, now here's where he goes off the rails a little bit. He says, uh, I'm the guy that loved the New Guardians conceptually. Really? Okay. Anyway, <laughs> he goes, but I always find that their series is a little bit of a letdown. I really feel like it's about half of a great team. I think they made a huge mistake by not lifting a few existing supporting cast members for the team as well. And then he says, I just recently started reading all of Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, and I will say that Rebus is by far the most interesting character in the bunch, and this piece suits him slash her well. And you can't beat that straight up Madonna Vogue. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And he says, Jill Thompson and George Perez's Silver Swan is gorgeous, but I'm always a bit weirded out to see Jill doing superhero work at this point. She's a highly capable of it, but it's not in her wheelhouse like her weirder stuff or wrestling shirts. And to that I say, oh, what? Um, wrestling shirts? Really, Nicholas? Wow, I had no idea. You learn something every day. But I totally agree with you. When I think of Jill Thompson, I think of like the crazy-ass stuff she did with like, Delirium and that kind of stuff. So seeing her do Silver Swan was like, Really? Wow, she can draw sexy. Okay. And then he goes, uh, he says, this is probably my favorite who's who, simply because it embraces the weird, pushing it the way, uh, its way through the DCU, through the pre-Vertigo books. I'll be curious to see how much Rob grumps when we get to all the Vertigo issue uh, later in the run. Yeah, dude. Uh, love your feedback. Sorry I picked on you there, Nicholas. But oh, awesome. Totally agree. I'm curious to see how Rob reacts to that, too. And we get to the Legion issue, too. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, my God. Uh, Mike LaCroix from the Canadian Military History Podcast says, Yay, you're almost done. Oh, wait, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Maybe he was halfway through the episode. I don't know. Uh, then we heard from Kichi Baker, my little friend. He says, <laughs> Remember, I picked on him calling him Little Last Episode. And uh, there was a whole big thing on Facebook where we kept going back and forth. But he basically says, Oberon Shag, really? We'll discuss this in Baltimore, son. And it just kept going. This whole, like, jokes about him being short. So, anyway, uh, don't, I don't advise you guys to get in on it. He will destroy you. He's, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very hard man. Anyway, uh, then we heard from Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, including Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond. Rob, what did he say? He said, I got so many shout-outs on this episode that my daughter, who was in the car with me as I listened, asked, Daddy, are you famous? My response, only for being awesome. Another great episode. <laughs> Apparently him and his daughter didn't get all the way to the end of the episode where I just torn to pieces when he gave the comment about uh, Rob's little buddy and I, I just bagged on the Secret Wars podcast. But whatever. Yeah, Maybe he didn't pay attention long enough. Well, right, well, done, well done, though, for having that answer right on the spot like that, though. <laughs> uh, then, fo well, yeah, he probably made that up. It's probably just sounds better in his head. Anyway, uh... <laughs> There you go. There's one for your daughter. Yeah, honey, your daddy's crazy. He makes things up in his head. 
So uh, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the Who's Who podcast on their social media timeline, meaning Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it's a big, long list of names. It's like a phone book. I say it every month. But we really, really, really want to recognize all of these folks that help promote the show. I mean, think about it. This may be the only single time that David Morgan gets mentioned in this episode. But he deserves it because he helped promote the show, folks. Uh, every single one of you are an important part of the Who's Who community. So our thanks go out to Adam Blackmoon, Al Girding, Between the Pages, Birds of Prey Podcast, Brother Earl at Mr. Black Riding Hood, Cash Flag, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comics Reviews by Walt, Comics in the Golden Age, CWL Pen at Killer Moth, Dale Russell, hey, there's David Morgan, Derek Crabb's Jacket, specifically, Derek Crabb's Jacket did promote us, it was amazing, I'm not kidding, uh, Dr. Ange, Dr. G of Nerdology, uh, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Ian Perez, Jeff Hunter, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Con L, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Legion Bloggers, Legion of Superheroes at Bring Back the Legion of Superheroes, Longbox of Darkness, Luke Giaconetti, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Merck Wade, Michael O'Brien, Nebraska David West, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Read More Comics, Relatively Geeky, Rick G at Degenerate Boy, Rolds Spine Podcast, Russell Rosenkild, Ryan Blake, Scott X, Siskoid, Supergirl Radio, Temporary Shaker Talk, Trelania Windsor, Two True Freaks, Uncle Sam, Waiting for Doom, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarborough. You know, I think it's kind of nice that Uncle Sam promoted us considering it's uh, July 4th just happened. So that's nice. Perfect. <laughs> And folks, remember, we'll be posting some of those images over on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. That was Rob's job to say, but he didn't bother to, so I'll do it for him. You had one job, sir. One job. Anyway. I had many jobs. <laughs> uh, you can find Rob on 40% of the Twitter accounts in the internet, so please do that. You can find me out there as well. But the important thing is go out to fireandwaterpodcast.com and leave your comments. We want to hear from you so you can be in next episode's uh, feedback. And, uh, of course, find us on Facebook and Twitter and all that. I think it's going to do it, folks. Until next time, who's next? Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. This is the Holy Crawl Through, and it's ten feet long? I'm afraid so. Well, I know someone who can reach that mouse. Plastic Man. You're right. I'll be back in a flash with Plastic Man. This narrow tube curves this way and that, Plastic Man. In and around the machinery. Do you think you could reach the mouse? That's not the problem. I don't want to hurt the mouse. Superman, will you watch with your X-ray vision and tell me when my hand is near it? Watch it, PM. There's a hot tube up ahead. Oops, you were right, SM. Easy now. You're in the booster chamber. Move forward slowly. A little to the right. Poor thing's scared. 
He's in the corner. Aw, I'm gonna keep him as a pet. <laughs> 